This podcast was recorded before the recent death of actor Anton Yelchin, and so that news will obviously not be mentioned during the discussion of his work in this movie. Thankfully, I don't think anyone made any of those comments that sound a lot worse after someone dies, like the story of Nick Meyer's last meeting with Gene Roddenberry. We'll take a look at Yelchin's death and the effect it'll have on the franchise in our discussion of Star Trek Beyond, which will be the first of our Star Trek episodes recorded after his death. Until then, enjoy the show. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where our inspiration is darkness. Today we reach the end of the archival phase of the Star Trek Film Vault series with Star Trek Into Darkness, our last stop before we go beyond at the end of the month. With me, as always, is my own brother, Scott Butler. Scott, tell me, are you feeling homicidal, power-mad, despotic? Not more than usual. Yeah, that sounds about right. Also with us is our special guest, Alana Kelly, whom I am very glad to have back after the great discussion we had about Star Wars back in January. Alana, is there anything you would not do for your family? In fact, there's not, and I can prove it with a solitary tear. <laughs> yes, the solitary tear is always important to drive the point home. Oh, so masterful. Uh, now, for this movie, we are in 2013, when not much is going on in Star Trek, other than kind of waiting for the new movie. Um, and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, I suppose. It, it was a four-year wait this time. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time. Um, Elena, where are you kind of coming from in terms of Star Trek, and where were you on it in 2013? Well, in 2013, I was anxiously anticipating Into Darkness because I really, really, really enjoyed J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Um, and they, I actually consider them my Star Trek because I'm not super familiar with the original series, although I've, I've seen the pilot and a couple of other ones. Uh, and of course, I've seen um, many, many GIFs of, 
of the Star Trek original series on the internet. Um, and then I, I did have a brief um, Next Generation thing going on when I was in middle school because I was um, I had a crush on Data in a weird way. And so I, <laughs> I fangirled a little bit about Next Generation, but I, did, I haven't actually watched all of Next Generation. So when the Star Trek project came out, the original, or, or you know, the JJ's first one, um, I jumped on it because I knew I was interested and I figured that this would be a really great way to come on board with all the original characters um, who I did know a little bit just because they became such cultural icons. Like there was, there were a lot of things to tap into even, even, um, you know, not being super familiar. So like, these are my Star Treks. That's how I think of it. Excellent. Excellent. And I think you are far from alone on uh, fangirling over data. I think that was a pretty common experience for a lot of people. How weird, but yet we did. It's the same kind of thing that happened with Spock in the 60s, really. Yeah. Where the character who is a little more removed and a little colder kind of draws people in. Yeah, there's something about the cold one. I mean, Uhura gets it, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Now, in terms of approaching it for this podcast... I kind of think that this is the hardest movie to conceptualize for a series like this. You know, these historical podcasts that we're doing, because it's not the beginning or the ending of an era. It's not in an anniversary year, as a few of them have been. It doesn't even have the distance of history. It's not even like it's, you know, 30 years old and has a different historical context. It's from just a few years ago with a lot of the same elements that are in the new movie, obviously. And so it's kind of a middle chapter of something that's still ongoing. So I was trying to think, how do you put it in context? Like, what is this movie fundamentally about, and what is it doing? And Scott, I think you had the first answer that really came to mind. Well, what this movie is about and what it's fundamentally doing is telling an alternate universe fan-fictional story about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Which I don't say is a criticism. I actually really enjoy it, because I like alternate history, I like alternate universe, I like going back and tweaking the timeline and seeing what would happen. So I like those elements of this movie, which I know other people don't. Other people kind of shit on it for those reasons, but I greatly enjoy seeing the familiar elements from Wrath of Khan just slightly twisted. We have covered on this podcast series how a great many of the later Star Trek movies try desperately to be Rathacon. They want to have a villain that's as captivating as Khan. They want to have a conflict that's as engrossing as Kirk versus Khan. They want to have a big epic story that lives up to the slightly overinflated historical reputation that Wrath of Khan has. As good as it was, it's not as good as many people remember it as. And Mm. we've gone through the long, long litany of Star Trek villains who were hyped up as this is the best villain since Khan, and they never, never were. And particularly Star Trek Nemesis wanted so badly to be Wrath of Khan, you could just see it pouring out of every element of that film, and it failed so badly. This movie takes it from an entirely different direction. It's not trying to live up to Rathacon. It's not trying to be Rathacon. It just sort of takes the elements of Rathacon straight, like even more than Nemesis did. It just takes the elements out of Rathacon and just plops them in a slightly different context and says, here you go. And in my opinion, that makes it the most successful of them. 
It's not trying to live up to Rathacon. It's just sort of telling a sideways story that shares some of the same elements as Rathacon. And because I enjoy alternate history, alternate universe stories, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, plus they, they they lowered the expectation by not signposting that it was Khan in the marketing. And, like, Khan has an alias when we meet him on screen. Like, they, they disclose that it's Khan later to pretty great effect. It was a secret, I believe, when they were marketing it originally. It was basically the worst kept secret. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, they, they tried to keep it a secret, but it, you can't keep that kind of secret these days. I mean, I, I remember first hearing that they had tried to get Benicio Del Toro to be in the movie, and everyone said, oh yeah, they're going to have him play Khan. And then, when Benicio Del Toro was not in the movie, and instead they cast Bourgeoisie Cabbage Patch, I remember thinking, what role would be able to be offered to both Benicio Del Toro and Bramble Pelt Candy Snatch? Mm-hmm. That was really the biggest argument against Khan being in the movie when all the spoilers came out that oh it's going to be Khan the biggest argument against them is well they wouldn't have cast a white English guy as Khan yeah you want to get into that right now <laughs> you're going to talk about Khan and who they cast as Khan yeah I mean I mean we know that in Hollywood there's no character that they won't try to give to a white dude like nothing is sacred <laughs> no not at all and he's like my favorite white dude on earth, and I still have to raise an objection for reasons. <laughs> well, I think the opinion on this movie, at least in my experience, and from my experience, I mean talking to Glenn, opinion <laughs> on this movie is basically sharply divided between me, who can acknowledge, okay, there's some horrible racist whitewashing in the casting in this movie, and then move on and enjoy the movie, and Glenn, who can't move on from there to enjoy the movie. Well, that's getting a little bit into a, a final summation, but I think it really does kind of handicap any enjoyment of the movie that I would have. It's a big, big demerit against the movie. Obviously. Um, and yes. I am not nearly as engrossed in AU fanfic as you are, and so that doesn't really draw me in as much. So I was already put off by some of the major scenes in this movie. See, the way that I look at it is that casting Burlingoff Rasmussen as Khan is a detriment against the filmmakers, it's a detriment against the director and the producers and the casting people, but it's not a detriment against the film. I mean, it is a detriment against the, the making of the film, but it's not a detriment against the quality of the story, it's not a detriment against the quality of the acting, even the quality of his acting. It's not a detriment against the entertainment value contained within the film. It's a detriment against the people who made it and their flawed thinking, but it's not a detriment against the entertainment value contained within the film. Yeah, like, I think what you're saying is it's not a reason the film can't be good. Yeah, I mean, just because just they yeah. cast a white guy as Khan doesn't mean that the storytelling is bad or that the dialogue is bad or that the acting is bad. It just means that they clearly didn't put enough thinking or the right kind of thinking into who they cast. Like, I think it's just important that us three white people just yeah. acknowledge that it's actually not cool that this happened, but it's not a reason that we can't discuss uh, the, the this and the film and other aspects of the film. It's just it's just important. Like, anytime, anytime that we're sitting here being white people taking an art, it's, imp it's important to, to just 
touch on some political ramifications of how the art was made. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess what I'm saying is I can still enjoy the art despite the racism mm-hmm. that went into casting that particular role. Maybe that's my privilege as a white guy that I'm able to get past that and enjoy the movie otherwise. I mean, a little bit, Scott, and it's cool that you know that. And me too, also. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, of course that one bad decision doesn't necessarily doom the whole movie. And there are things that I like about this movie. I just find it deeply, deeply flawed, and not just in that way. The other thing I just wanted to notice was the first act with the blackmail slash exchange of Khan's blood for that family, um, who appear to be maybe of South Asian descent family, I was really glad to see them, and I was really sad that it was a character of color who had to perform this violent action in a story. I like, I don't know. I had really mixed, like, there was still all that pathos created by the situation with the sick daughter, but then it was also like, who sells out in quotes? I don't know. Like, I just, does it matter? Maybe not. I just, I noticed that. No, I think I can see that from both of the directions that you mentioned. I think it is a good thing that the first act of this movie has an everyman who just wants to take care of his family, and it's Noel Clark. Yes, yes. While at the same time, of course, he's the one who actually blows up a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. If you re- so I just, you know, just noting that. If you really wanted to start reading into it, you could try to analyze the fact that the black man, in order to heal his daughter, needs the blood of a white guy. Yeah. <laughs> There's that. There's that. Ooh, dark, Scott. I actually hadn't thought of that. <laughs> a, well, a, a white guy in this movie who they made an entire comic book just to show the scene where he's unfrozen and he's Ricardo Montalban and then they do all sorts of wacky future plastic surgery. Yeah, they made it a whole comic book to explain the whitewashing where they literally whitewashed the guy. Wow. That 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 does not make things better. I mean, like I'm sort of glad they responded to the criticism, but also what? Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't think that was them responding to criticism of the whitewashing. I think that was them responding to the concerns Continuity of, problems? <laughs> yeah, the concerns of people who are very worried about canon. And oh, yeah. why does he look different? How can he look different, possibly? And so they needed to establish in continuity some reasons for it, and not necessarily engage with the whitewashing aspects of it at all. I don't know, when you take Ricardo Montalban and wheel him into surgery to turn him into Benihana counterinsurgency, I think you're pretty (laughs) heavily engaging in the whitewashing. Engaging in, not engaging with. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's it. That's it exactly, Glenn. Yeah, to get back to your point, like, what is the movie and what is it for? I was thinking, like, what, what is the message? And they didn't really spell this out, which is either really masterful or negligent, or it got lost in the drafting. But it, it seems clear that the mo- like part of the moral message is that warmongering isn't okay. Like Admiral Marcus is trying to start a war, and there's no discussion of the economy of 
warmongering, but it's usually super relevant to whoever's engaging in it. Um, and that's the part that's missing. Like what, what purpose does it serve for him to start a war with the Klingons? It's usually monetary. Like if we want to give it like a Halliburton reading, which is kind of what I wanted to do based on the expense of the dreadnought ship. And like, I don't know, like they didn't quite go there, but the warmongering is shitty message came out to me. And it also gave a lot more weight on rewatch to Scotty refusing to sign for the torpedoes. Cause I, I didn't really appreciate it the first time that I saw it, which was in the theater back in 2013. Um, But this time when I watched, I was really with him and really very also upset that a ship with only peaceful missions would be armed in that way. And I was really stoked that he actually did quit. Like he really did. Like it wasn't a bluff. And of course, Kirk doesn't bluff either, but, uh, and that sets up the, that that sets up an, an arc for the, for the movie, but just in terms of character, and also in terms of reflection on on sort of like conscientious objection, I was really into that. Yeah, the big redemptive reading that I would have for this movie is that it's about warmongering and it's about the rule of law. As yeah. soon as they get their mission to go after John Harrison, mm-hmm. Spock is arguing we shouldn't be killing him, we should be apprehending him. And Kirk yes. is resistant at first because he's still, you know... Angry. Yeah, he's still wrapped up in vengeance and bloodlust and, mm-hmm. and all of these things after Harrison's attack at Starfleet headquarters and after he kills Captain Pike. But he does eventually come around and decide to apprehend him and bring him back to Earth to stand trial. And there is the whole dynamic where he's put into opposition with Admiral Robocop in trying like hell not to start a war with the Klingons. As has happened many times in Star Trek, going back almost all the way, war is the failure state, you know? Right. If this particular mission in a particular episode or movie fails, we're going to have a war. Often with the Klingons, sometimes with the Cardassians, with whatever alien race that they're kind of struggling with in whatever clandestine mission or diplomatic struggle or whatever, war is the failure state. Mm -hmm. Except in the opinion of Admiral Marcus, in which case he wants to build all these weapons that he can win a war with and then start the war so he can use all his weapons. Yeah, like that's, I don't think they sufficiently motivated it. Like he says something along the lines of who will be in charge when we're at war if it's not me. Like, so there's maybe like an ego thing, but then it's like, what is the real reason? Yeah, that's his moment where he's basically being Jack Nicholson at the end of A Few Good Men. I don't think they really needed to get into it much deeper than that. I mean, they certainly could have and told a deeper story, but to a certain extent, military leaders often are warmongers just because they are military leaders and they want to go flex their military muscle. They don't necessarily Mm -hmm. need the economic motivation that the business elites have. I mean, they could have gotten deeper into it and maybe shown, like, you know, some sort of shadowy business magnates who are pulling the strings or who are egging Marcus on to get him into the war so that they could build more ships and more torpedoes and whatever. But in a Star Trek context, the evil Admiral of the Week wants to start a war is basically the Star Trek story. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't totally fail as a story. Like, it, it, it works fine as a story. I just, I wanted something maybe a little bit more from the Marcus thing, especially since he's painted as very intelligent and also maybe completely amoral since 
it like they, and this is the this is another thing where I think maybe some stuff got lost in drafting the scripts. But because we, we Khan kind of explains what's going on with himself and Marcus, but it's it's a little weird. Like it seems to be in a, basically an in, an indentured servitude situation. Like Marcus is holding the rest of the crew in the cryotubes hostage to get Khan to work. So I got that part. And then so Khan has to escape by himself, um, knowing that Marcus might kill the rest of the crew. And then he assumes that he does, which is apparently the motivation for the attack on the Starfleet headquarters. But it's like, I don't know. It was, it was, it was a little mushy. They tried to serve it to us correctly, but there's just there's some problems a little bit with this particular backstory. And I don't and I'm not familiar with the Wrath of Khan backstory. So maybe it is there. And I was meant to connect them some things, but yeah. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that there's no reason for us to believe a single word that comes out of Khan's mouth. That's true. <laughs> so well, the way that he presents himself is that he is a military genius, a genetically engineered military genius from a more warlike era. And mm. what Admiral Marcus is saying in his Jack Nicholson moment, basically, is that your generation is, is too soft, you can't lead mm. a war like this. And so they would seem to align in that way, where each one would want to use the other one until one of them can kill the other one and take control and wage war. Which mm -hmm. essentially they're both trying to do throughout the movie. That's the movie I would watch. Con v. Marcus in detail. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile when... Uh, I kind of just want to call him Harrison for this whole show. Uh, <laughs> uh, we can get into that part later. You can. But, I, I names on the door. I can I can do what I want. I guess, but um, you can call him Trixie since, for the rest of the show if you want. Trixie, yeah. Pebbles. But, but when he is describing in the brig how he was working for Marcus, he's almost presenting himself like Marcus unfroze Sun Tzu and asked him to start designing battle plans. You yeah. Know? Mm -hmm. Like, Khan is from the 20th century, and suddenly he's designing advanced weaponry, because he's just that quick on the uptake. That's an excellent criticism there, Glenn. It's a big question mark. Although, given in the original series episode where Khan first appears, he basically is that quick on the uptake. Yeah, I was gonna say, that's not necessarily an inconsistency. That's one thing, if you're going to try to recreate the Wrath of Khan, it's very difficult in a circumstance like this movie series, because you have to start at the beginning of the Khan story, which is him getting unfrozen in deep space. Well, that's what they did. And I thought that was a very good use of the alternate universe, that their increased exploration in response to the destruction of Vulcan, searching out somewhere for Vulcans to form colonies, looking for new planets to settle the refugee population on, has spurned further exploration of reaches of the galaxy the ordinary wouldn't have reached until decades later, and that's why they found Khan so early. I thought that was a very good use of the alternate universe context in order to tell the story. Plus continuity with the first one. Right. 
That's one criticism that I've seen of this movie that I don't totally go along with, is that they destroyed Vulcan and, and did this thing that is absolutely huge for the Star Trek universe, and then don't really follow up on it. I mean, it's true that that's not what this movie is about, and they could have made a movie about the Vulcan refugee crisis, and if they really wanted to make an allegory in 2016, they would make a movie about the Vulcan refugee crisis. But, you know, they do use it as a background element. Um, you're right, Scott, that's how they find Khan, is because they're exploring more aggressively. They it, have a fairly major scene where Spock reveals that he is still dealing with the emotional repercussions and post-traumatic stress from losing his planet. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's still there. It's not like anyone forgot about it. One thing they do with Khan that I thought was just fucking brilliant... And it might be my favorite part of the movie. Well, I have a couple of favorite parts of this movie. This movie is fucking incredible. Yay. One of the things they do with Khan is they sort of, with his little speech in the brig, where he talks about Admiral Marcus unfroze me, and he forced me to help him build these weapons by threatening the rest of my crew. They're like my family, and I couldn't leave them behind. I had to help Marcus, but I took this opportunity to escape, and... I'm sorry I killed your friend, but I had to strike back against this evil organization that Marcus is in charge of. And he gives this whole speech, and then Marcus shows up, and he is trying to destroy the ship and kill all the Starfleet officers. And he's got this big warship, and he wants to start a war, and so he's obviously the bad guy. And it's such a classic, often-told story of the person I start off thinking is my enemy... It turns out that we both have the same, much greater enemy. And now we can team up and fight the greater enemy together. That story has been told a thousand times in a thousand different movies, a thousand different books. I thought you were my enemy, but now I find out that we both have a much greater enemy, so we're going to team up and fight that greater enemy together. And they are completely building that story between Kirk and Khan. Where Admiral Marcus shows up, and Khan is the one that knows about Admiral Marcus, knows about the ship he's in, can help them protect themselves, can help them fight back. And Kirk and Khan team up and they do that space jump thing to get to the other ship. And, the, mm -hmm. and they're fighting the people on board the Vengeance together. And it's they even quote the line, the enemy mm -hmm. of my enemy is my friend. Kirk and Spock have a whole conversation about the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they are building up that storyline that we've all seen a thousand times. Until Spock calls Spock on the communicator. And Spock comes on screen and reminds us all. He informs Spock, young Spock, because young Spock doesn't have the experience, but old Spock is also there to remind the audience, because this worked on me. I was completely caught up in it that... Kirk and Khan are going to team up now, and they're, they're going to fight back against the much greater enemy. They're going to put aside their differences, and, and they're going to team up to combat the big evil. I was totally with that story until old Spock came on the view screen to remind me. He was speaking directly to me and other members of the audience that had been duped. He spoke directly to me to remind me, hey... No, that's not what's happening. No, this is Khan. This is not a friend. This is not someone's going to turn around to fight evil. This is Khan. 
That thing you thought was happening for the last 40 minutes, that's not actually what's happening. Because this is con! And I'm sitting there, I, this happened to me in the theater on opening night. I'm sitting there in the audience staring at old Spock on the screen going, Fuck! That's con! <laughs> Somebody needs to tell Kirk! That's not your friend! That's con! And of course, casting a white English guy as Khan sort of helped that along, helped you sort of forget that that's Khan and think of him as a potentially sympathetic John Harrison. But still, I, that is the most brilliant part of the script. It totally fucking duped me into thinking they were telling one particular story until they bring out old Spock on to literally tell you, no, that's not the story we're telling. That's Khan! You're not going to team up with him against a bigger evil. There's no bigger evil than Khan. I thought that was fucking brilliant. It is very exciting. And I also, I like the part when they've made it to the vengeance and Uhura is with them and uh, Khan gets ahead of them and Kirk says, stun him when we get to the bridge. And she's like, really? And, and or no, not, I'm sorry, it's not Uhura, it's Scotty. It's Scotty, um, yeah. And it's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're helping him like there it is the closure of uh of what spock prime reminds us on the screen like that guy costs a lot <laughs> and if you notice scotty is supposed to be guarding khan after he stuns him the thing mm -hmm. that distracts him from watching khan is when admiral marcus mentions that kirk invaded klingon space and killed the klingon patrol that's when scotty yeah. looks away from guarding khan and looks up at kirk like what the fuck you seriously did that and that's why Khan is able to jump up and get the drop on them because Spock's. Oh, know, I didn't notice that. That's great. Yeah, because Scotty's attention is distracted from these potential war crimes that Kirk has committed against Kronos. Yeah, even yeah. then, Scotty is still acting as the heart of the movie, like he does earlier when he refuses to sign off on the torpedoes because we're supposed to be explorers. You know, Scotty and Spock in different ways are trying to be the conscience of the movie, while, for a while at least, Kirk kind of pushes forward with his mission. We have to go get him, we have to have vengeance, we have to do all of these things. Until he eventually realizes, as so many people have to realize in so many movies, that vengeance is empty. Even the, mm. ap even the vengeance, the ship, it doesn't have very many people in it. <laughs> you know, if they really wanted to echo... The... And it's got that big hole in the saucer section. Yeah, exactly. You know, if they really wanted to echo the Wrath of Khan again, in order for Harrison to prove that he was willing to help Kirk, he could have given him the Vengeance prefix code. <laughs> I also appreciated very much the visual of the Enterprise and the Vengeance squaring off, because you can see the Vengeance is a Federation-designed ship, but it's so dark, and it looks terrible, like, looking looking out from the bridge and looking at that thing, like, uh-oh. It, it, does, it does look terrible in a few ways. Um, Glenn's not a fan. I'm not a fan of the design of that ship. I understand the role that it plays symbolically in the story, because... The introduction of John Harrison to the manufacture and design of this new generation of Starfleet weaponry makes the ship that he then produces look like this perversion of a Starfleet ship. It's all jagged angles. It's all straight lines and edges. It's a warship. 
in a way that for a long time, on screen at least, Starfleet didn't really have dedicated warships. And that's just one more perversion, not only that Khan introduces, but which Admiral Marcus and implicitly Section 31 is pursuing. See, I kind of liked the Vengeance as a callback, because if you look back at fandom, a fandom in the 70s and early 80s, when there was a lot of fandom creativity, because there wasn't a lot of new Star Trek being made, fan-made ship designs were very popular, and one of the most popular was a Dreadnought ship. Most fan-made ship designs were some variation of a kitbash of the Enterprise, and people all made Dreadnought versions with, like, three nacelles or two star drive sections or whatever. These, you know, big, heavy, warship, Dreadnought-class starship designs were a big, big, big thing in fandom in the 70s and the early 80s. There was even a novel whose title was Dreadnought with an explanation point. That was the title of the novel, and it was all about Starfleet building a Dreadnought-class starship based in part on these fan designs that have been floating around for the previous 15 years. So I appreciated the Vengeance as a callback to that era of fandom. It definitely is a callback in that way, conscious or not, but it's also using those aspects of the design to point out how wrong it is that it exists. Yeah, it's an anti-enterprise, that's what I wrote down. Like a shadow self. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, even down to the colorizing of the ships. You know, the Enterprise is a lot of whites and silvers, and the Vengeance is black as space. Yeah, mm. it's actually hard to see it on screen. Uh, a, a couple of times, yeah. It's better on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> that has a function, too. That's a stealth paint job. And it's it's unmarked. Like it's just it's, I mean I know it's not unmarked, but it, like it just I still appreciate it. Just it looks like an absence of stars squaring off against the Enterprise. It's very dark. Can I just also say while I'm thinking of it, I mentioned the sheer brilliance of the storyline misdirection of sort of making you start feeling sympathetic to John Harrison before Spock comes on to tell you no 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 that's Khan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Another thing that might be the most brilliant part of this movie is when young Spock asks old Spock, were you able to defeat Khan? And old Spock says, at great cost. Yes. Old Spock, who had to die in order to get the ship to escape from the Genesis explosion that Khan set off, he delivers the line, at great cost. I think that is just such a brilliant moment. It is so cool. Yeah, it's a really beautiful moment. And I was actually, I was stoked to see Spock Prime, who could so easily be only a gimmick, but they're using him very well. Yeah, yeah, even, even in the first movie, and particularly in this one, it, it would be very easy just to sort of have him there, just to point at him and say, look, it's Leonard Nimoy in our movie. But they really do think about it some and use him in important ways in ways that couldn't have been any other character. It's not like, well, we need some guy to deliver this line, so let's get Leonard Nimoy to do it. It couldn't be anyone other than old Spock who tells them, here's what I know about Khan, you know? 
And well, also, I... also, there's another layer to that entire interaction, which I'm, I appreciate the more I think about it. What is Spock Prime modeling in that interaction with our Spock? He says, you know that I've taken a vow not to influence you in, in any way. However, watch me right now. I'm, I'm making an exception right now because of how dangerous Khan is. And then what does our Spock immediately do? He makes an exception to his never misrepresenting anything rule by allowing Khan to think that the torpedoes that have exploded contain the people. Like he, he creates a misrepresentation on purpose. So it's like older Spock shows younger Spock that there must be exceptions to rules, which is a constant conflict that everyone has with Spock, that he won't make exceptions. Yeah, that's the big conflict that Kirk and Spock have at the beginning of the movie, when yeah. they have their mission on Nibiru and violate the Prime Directive, and Spock in insists on letting Starfleet know about it. You see that Spock doesn't believe in exceptions to rules, and then by the end of the movie, as old Spock said in the previous movie, he didn't lie, he implied. <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting, that line that Spock says about, as you know, I have taken a vow never to give you any information that may influence your destiny. When did he take that vow? It must have been at some point after the previous movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of the things that I noted down about the previous movie was that Spock realizes he's in an alternate universe rather than just the past of his own universe, and so he decides, okay, I can manipulate events and make things happen because I need to put the Enterprise crew together. And he spends a lot of the movie doing that. Yeah, in that first movie, he basically tries to get Kirk to take over the Enterprise for no real reason other than that his Kirk was the captain of his Enterprise in his universe. Even though, even in that universe, Kirk didn't take over until many years after the point in time where he's at now. He still tries to get this Kirk to take over this Enterprise. Also, he says at the end of the previous movie that he found a planet to establish a Vulcan colony on, and you've got to think that he's looking at star charts and thinking, okay, did we find someone who wanted to kill us on this planet? Okay, we were not going to go to that planet. <laughs> Did we find someone who wanted to kill us on that planet? Okay, let's not go to Cestus 3, <laughs> you know, and, and try to find a planet that he already knows is uninhabited. Let's see, this is the planet with those spores that made me get a girlfriend. Eh, possibility. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wondering just what sort of position he holds on New Vulcan. He's got to be one of the Elders. Yeah, but he can't mind meld with anyone, or else they would know the whole history of the Prime Universe. What's what I'm saying? When did he take this vow? Yeah, at some point he must have decided, I don't know if young Spock would have asked him about something, or if someone would have asked him about something and he decided, okay, no more spoilers. Until this movie where he decides, let's give out some spoilers. This one piece is just so important, I'm going to spoil it. Now, of course, that serves the purpose of getting Leonard Nimoy in the movie and having someone with perspective, with a capital P, on Khan and the whole conflict around him, which I suppose is more dramatically satisfying than just having someone look up in the library computer, oh yeah, Khan, he's a dictator. <laughs> oh yeah. I do kind of love that there's no Wikipedia in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> they have to kind of feel it out old school. <laughs> yeah, 
I don't know if you guys touched on this because I unfortunately didn't get to listen to the podcast about J.J. Abrams 1, but um, we talk about how awesome Zach Quinto is as Spock because he's fantastic. He's so good I can't even get over it. He really is good. so good. It's so, so good. So there's like, there's Spock's mannerisms anyway. Like I, I don't, the I don't use contractions thing and the, he has a particular mannerism which of course he's using but i don't feel and it was he had an extra challenge because they're not even letting him be spock alone in either of these pictures there's another spock v spock for comparison (laughs) it's just it's right there it's right there and and also the the conflicts uh that he's always felt for being um you know by by species or by racial i don't know how they consider it in in or the nomenclature that they would use to describe that he is mixed but um he really does a masterful job i'm so into it and he has a lot to handle in this movie yeah like all the tactical master strokes have to come from him because kirk's off the ship right but in in addition uh zachary quinto has a lot of big emotional scenes thrown at him to play as spock there's the scene in the volcano where he thinks he's about to die. There's the little monologue that he has about his PTSD, essentially, after the destruction yeah. of his planet and the fact that he doesn't want to feel that again. And so let's not feel anything, which, even for us lowly humans, is a, is a way of uh, shutting down. Yeah. And then, of course, there is the death scene and all that follows. I feel like you don't like it, Glenn. <laughs> well, woofa. Do you not like it because Spock rapes and tortures Pike as he's dying? Can we not? I just like to bring these up now, since you made the point so vociferously in the previous episode. I'm yes, I made the point that I'm not a fan of non-consensual mind melts. Well, sure. here we go. Pike didn't exactly give his consent. No, he didn't. And it was kind of like emotion porn for Spock. I wanted to know what it felt like to die. Uh, That wasn't exactly the death scene I was talking about, though. Really? Whose death are you talking about, if not Pike's? I was talking about the Kirk death scene. Oh, that scene is awesome! Uh I know you don't like it for some unfathomable reason. I want to hear Glenn's unfathomable reason, because I like it too. But maybe Glenn will change my mind. Outvoted! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Outvoted on my own show. That's that's just how that goes. Um, Next, we're going to vote to take your name off the door. Oh, no. Atlanta <laughs> Kelly, Podcast Hour Spectacular. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> how do I phrase this? Okay, look. <laughs> I really am not as invested in the engagement with AU fanfic as you are, Scott? Well, that would definitely detract from your enjoyment of this movie. I really think this movie would have been better if Burberry Coochie Rash had been playing John Harrison and not Khan. I really wish this movie didn't have Khan in it. That's a whole it's a other very, discussion. It's a very different movie in that case, I know. You could tell that story. You, you could avoid the whitewashing and still use BFG Cram Session... And avoid the whitewashing involving with casting him as Khan, Nooney, and Singh. 
In addition to avoiding the whitewashing, I think that a lot of the explicit AU elements where it's just, you know, where they're literally reading scenes from the Wrath of Khan script did not work for me. I was more than thrown out of the movie. I mean, in the scene in the brig where he finally says, yo, I'm Khan, I was kind of, like, cocking my head to the side, like, oh, please, please no, please no. And then, <laughs> when the warp core went down and Kirk started running into it, I was saying, please no, 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 please no. Which leads to the one aspect of the AU echoing that I think is actually done slightly better than it is in The Wrath of Khan, which is, of course, the fact that in The Wrath of Khan, Spock goes into the engine chamber and waves his hands around in a tube, and then the warp core comes back online and they can get away. Whereas in this movie, Kirk goes into the warp core, and there are two thingies, and they're supposed to be aligned, and the one thingy is out of place, and Kirk has to put the thingy back. You can see what he's doing, it's an actual concrete thing that he has to do that you can see. Is the one aspect I think is better, but... The entire death scene, I was not feeling the emotions of the characters, I was not feeling the emotions of the scenes, I was feeling the emotion typified by saying over and over in your head, No, please, oh, give me a fucking break. I do not understand how you're so averse to AU fanfic. Is it just... I don't know, I, I am sometimes guilty of universalizing my own experience. You know, if I know something, I just assume that most other people know it as well, because I'm not quite in a place to assume where, well, I know lots of things you don't know. And so I sort of go too far the opposite way. Well, I know this, so of course you must. So maybe you just don't have the right sorts of experiences with AU fanfic. Or maybe you just, I don't know, have some sort of incomprehensible difference in taste. I loved every single bit of that. I loved the death scene. I loved Kirk going into the warp core. I loved the quoting of lines from Wrath of Khan. I loved Simon Pegg going, you'll flood the whole compartment. I, I loved, 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 loved Spock overcome with emotion, overcome with grief, and he's not holding back now. He's not shutting down and trying not to feel. He is present and feeling the death of his captain and his comrade, and this person who he's just now sort of consciously realizing was an actual friend, and he lets that emotion out, and he vents, and he screams, God! I love, 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 love every single fucking piece of that. Love it. Love it all. Oh, give me a break. Love it all. I liked it. I knew he was going to yell because of history, and I, that made me like it more. Like, I was expecting him to yell, and even though I was expecting it, I loved it. Every time I see that, I just start laughing with joy. Like, this is so good, and it's just so fun. That's what AU is. It's just fun. It's just taking the elements you know and playing with them in the sandbox and making them slightly different and using them in different ways. It's just fun. Well, the other thing I appreciated about that, and it, it might be that it, again, I don't know the script, so maybe it is the Wrath of Khan canon, but when Kirk is asking him through the glass, like, I feel fear, like, how do you turn it off? And there was an opportunity for Spock to be like, actually, I I can't like, you know, you know, like maybe there, there was, I thought that's what I was doing, but I couldn't, but he doesn't say that. He says, I don't know, which 
means that he that is it is possible that his Vulcan side can turn off emotion and he and that he did, really did turn off emotion in the in the volcano and and a, after the the demise of Vulcan but like you, you know what I mean like it would it would have been like there there was like a cheap way they could have could have had him be oh he's really mostly human anyway and they did not do that they allowed his Vulcanness to still be there because he he's he says, I don't know how I am doing it. And then, of course, it leads into, and, I, and I'm not doing it now. Like, I can't do it now for whatever reason. I don't know. I, li- I liked that a lot. Well, there is a phenomenon where if somebody is really, really good at something, like it's just second nature to them, then they can't really explain how to do it because they're not even consciously doing it. It's just instinct. It's like if you try to explain to somebody, how do you walk? And it's like, well, I, I just do it, you know? And so for that side of Spock, it's just sort of instinctual, at least on his Vulcan side. And he's been doing it since he was a toddler, probably. And so it's prob- it probably is not anything that he does consciously. It's just something that's there. It's just something he instinctively does. Except at this point, he is either consciously or unconsciously choosing not to do it at this moment. Because at this moment, he's feeling these things and he wants to feel the grief. He wants to feel the anger. Because this is an important enough moment that he should feel anger at what Khan has done to cause Kirk's death. He should feel grief at the death of his captain and his comrade and his friend. He, he should feel all of these things. And he feels all of these things and he lets it out in this primal scream. Khan! Plus, I think he's taking on, he wants to allow the emotion because that is actually one of Kirk's gifts as a human, and he doesn't have Kirk anymore. He has to carry something from Kirk on. Maybe he can use the power of emotion to finish whatever has to happen with Khan. Because Spock and the Vulcans are sort of inherently nonviolent, and there's about to be a need for violence, and he needs to power that. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. Glenn's making a face. I'm not making mm-hmm. a face at you. I'm making a face at this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, Spock's secret is that he's always angry. <sighs> Let me ask you what... Because, I mean, I've read a lot of, like, alternate history, like, real-world alternate history, and, like, fan-fictional AUs and stuff like that. Is that just not a genre that appeals to you at all? That's a genre that I like in novels. I've read some alternate history novels and really liked them. Doing that with media franchises is something that I can appreciate in, like, short blog posts. But I can't really connect to it for an entire two-hour movie. Because even if you look at episodic Star Trek. Some of the most popular episodes involve that aspect. Yesterday's Enterprise is an entire alternate history of the Next Generation universe that leads to a more warlike, more militaristic Starfleet. The Mirror Universe episodes, where they travel to a parallel universe and see an alternate Starfleet, an alternate Federation. All good things, where you see that alternate future of what could happen if certain things happen in the past and the present. Yeah, and for the length of an episode, or part of an episode, as a diversion, that's entirely pleasant, and, you know, can result in some great episodes. But I guess what I was looking for from these new movies is the fact that Star Trek is back, we can make more Star Trek, we have, after the last movie, 
we have the ship, we have the crew, everyone's there, and what I was kind of looking for is just more Star Trek. We're exploring, and there are strange new worlds, and there's a story that happens. Rather than, we have this alternate universe, so that allows us to do AU versions of a lot of stories you have seen and loved. You know, another way to do the greatest hits. That's all about philosophy of how you talk to your fans when you have a franchise. Like a, a lot of people enjoy an inside joke and any inside anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be a joke, but like name dropping Khan and sort of shoehorning him to the story, into the story, which is a valid criticism. Um, that's a way, that's definitely a, a choice in how to approach fans. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a deliberate echo. I mean, this is the, the second movie in this Star Trek sub-series, and so they're redoing Star Trek II. And also, it's an iconic character and an, and an iconic villain and something that a lot of people love, and that's great. I just don't really dig going whole hog into a cover of the previous movie for so, so much of the story of this movie. And I mean, if you do, that's completely fair. Yeah, I don't really have a rebuttal to that other than I like it. I like that kind of storytelling. I mean, I... I like basically treating the original story as a series of building blocks and borrowing like three or four of them and, and adding them to your new set of building blocks and seeing what new thing you can build using bits and pieces of the old thing with your new set. I suppose I'm considering it in terms of a more stark divide between fandom recontextualization and actual produced product. You know, I love all of the rebuilding and recontextualization and the use of different elements as building blocks in fandom. That's wonderfully creative and generative, and that's an incredible thing that fans do. So your problem is that this is a Fifty Shades of Grey to Star Trek's Twilight. That's your problem, essentially. Oh, man, I think you just crystallized the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except Fifty Shades of Grey sucks. Then again, I'm not familiar with Twilight, so, so maybe, Twilight. I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be judging the Twilight AUs. Twilight also sucks, for yeah, the record. Y yeah, dude, I, I, saw two, I saw two of those movies. They're not good. But I mean, it's the same thing we were talking about in the last movie. This whole rebooted parallel timeline movie series is an AU. Here's Kirk, who grew up super rebellious without a father figure. How does he fit in with Starfleet? How does he get along with Spock and McCoy? That's an AU thing. That's taking elements of the original and putting them in a new context and seeing how it works. So now mm. this new Kirk has to deal with Khan. How is Khan different in this parallel timeline? And how does the new parallel timeline Kirk deal with the parallel timeline Khan? It's, it's just more of the same thing. That's fair enough. I also feel like the way that a lot of these things are done and a way that some of these things are introduced is really unsubtle. Well, you don't want it to be subtle. I mean, you're having people quoting lines from an earlier film in a slightly different context. The whole point is to recognize that's from the earlier film, but look at its new context. If you don't recognize it's from the earlier film, the whole AU 
concept kind of falls apart. Right, but... Oh, God. Um... Yeah, I don't think either. I don't think anyone is going to talk anyone around on this one. Uh, well, right. <laughs> I I probably wouldn't go so far as to call you a canon purist, Glenn, but oh, I think you have no. some common with canon purists. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> Maybe just in this one in this one setting. <laughs> I okay. That's okay. It's a major problem for. I, you know, canon purists. I don't even really object to the fact that they're doing a con story as much as the way that they did it. It is that just, you know, quoting entire scenes from Wrath of Khan that just throws me out of it. It is that sort of bashing you over the head with it. Well, see, that's, that's the joy of... Of an AU, and I'm saying this as someone who's read far too much fan fiction in my time, and read a lot of alternate universe fan fiction and a lot of different alternate universes. That is the real joy of the AU, is you take like an iconic scene from the original canon, and okay, how does that iconic scene play out now that the characters are in different positions? That's for me, at least, that is a large part of the attraction. And then you get the joy of recognition. Yeah. I, I want to yeah. see this, this discussion that took place when the characters were in their original positions. How does the changed circumstance of the AU somehow still lead them to that exact same discussion? And how is the discussion different because of the AU, even though it's also almost the same? Now Kirk is the one sacrificing himself while Spock is in command on the bridge trying to save the ship. Now Spock is the one screaming for vengeance against Khan and chasing him down. These are the things that are different and yet the same. And that's the really, really interesting part of constructing an AU. Is how is it the same and how is it different and how is it both of those things at the same time? See, I really appreciate a well-constructed story. Even aside from is the story entertaining, because, I mean, a story to be good has to be entertaining, but even past that basic aspect, I appreciate a well-constructed story. I appreciate seeing how the author thought through different aspects and managed to put it together to do what they wanted to do. Like what I was talking about earlier, where you almost sort of start to feel sympathy for John Harrison until Spock comes on and says, no, 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 you idiot, that's Khan. I appreciate the thought and preparation and planning and the construction how the story was constructed in order to build to that point in order to bring the audience along to that point so that old spock could come on and slap them across the face with a fish i appreciate the thought and the effort and the story construction that goes into bringing the audience to that point effectively and i appreciate the thought and the construction that goes into how does this scene from the original canon happen in this changed canon? And how does it happen slightly differently and yet still kind of the same? Those are the sorts of aspects of AU storytelling that really, really interest me. So I fucking love the entire bit where Kirk goes into the warp core instead of Spock and Kirk is dying from the radiation. It's the exact same scene except they're on opposite sides of the glass. And one of them is mirroring the other, and the other is mirroring the one, and yet they're still both themselves. They're not just 
It's not just that Spock is doing everything Kirk did and Kirk is doing everything that Spock did. Kirk is doing some of the things that Spock did, but Kirk is still Kirk, and so he's doing things that Kirk would do, except he's also doing some of the things that Spock did in the original. And it's all these confluence of similarities and differences and both of those things stacked on top of each other. It's the, the construction of all of that and how does all of that come together to form this new story. I fucking love that. Okay, I've got a metaphor for you too, Scott. If you're liking the Jeff Buckley Hallelujah uh, compared to the Leonard Cohen Hallelujah. It's a brilliant cover. <laughs> Actually, I think my favorite version of Hallelujah is the Rufus Wainwright version. Oh, good choice. Same thing, though. Like, what what do we love about a cover? It's a lot like that. It's recontextualizing, yeah. Yeah, familiar elements mixed into something uh, new, hopefully by somebody who knows what they're doing. That's an important part of a cover. If you don't know what you're doing, you're in trouble. Also, a brief shout out to the makeup artists because uh, watching uh, Kirk uh, sickening of radiation poisoning was very upsetting to me, uh, and I thought it was really well done. Yeah, he definitely starts to look look rougher kind of by the second as he's climbing up on the yes. on, on all those hoses and tubes and whatever. Yeah, and th- that would have been really difficult to shoot, and they really kept it going. And you can also watch his uh, his eyes are starting to get red, um, like his skin is discoloring, he's sweating, like it's just, there's a lot of stuff going on, and they kept it very tight. And I was really really upset. So nice job, makeup artists. <laughs> Another thing that helps build that scene, that helps make that scene for me, and we'll get to this later, we always do at the end of the show, the music for that scene while Kirk is inside the warp core is just fucking incredible. One of the best pieces of music in this movie. We will definitely get to the score later because there are a few highlights to point out, but we have been having a great discussion of this so far. We will continue to do so after we take a quick break to hear about all the other shows on our podcast network. Thank you for listening so far. We will see you on the other side. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nations justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes stitcher google play and place to be nation.com and we now offer them to you on two great feeds as well on the place to be podcast feed you can check out scott criscolo and me on the mothership the place to be podcast with our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews ptbn also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines main event mission indie possible in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on wwe nxt and ring of honor super shows Relive Wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse and the Dangerous Alliance Wrestling Podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. We also have sports covered, too, with the Sports Lounge, the TJ McLoon Show, and NBA Team Podcast. 
On our brand new PTB Pop podcast feed, we offer great shows such as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both feeds on iTunes, and be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows are available on PlayStation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to check out on the right-hand side of the site for details on how to support the site when you shop at Amazon and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and Scott Keats' blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This is Parv, and I'm here to tell you to listen and subscribe to the pro wrestling-only Place to Be Nation podcast network. That's the PWO PTBN podcast network where you'll find a ton of in-depth shows done by hardcore fans. We've got Chris Zellner's One-Two Punch of Exile on Bad Street and with David Bickenspan, a smash hit between the sheets. We've got Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave, Goodwill Wrestling and the Reaction Shows with Good Old Will from Texas. We've got This Week in Wrestling with my man Pete and Johnny Sorrow. Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston's Pro Wrestling Super Show. Tag Team's back again with Kelly and Marty Sleaze. And a ton of other great shows too. And of course, there's Titans of Wrestling and Where the Big Boys Play with yours truly and some dude from down south called Chad. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. You have to look at your own allergic reaction to this movie and call it what it is. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have that reaction at all to the last movie. And I don't expect to to the new one. But it's... it's ugh, This one just, just skeeves me out. You know what it might be? What's that? This movie, you could make the argument, it sort of falls into the uncanny valley. Yeah. Between being a new, brand new story or being an old story it's not yeah. just wrath of khan again but it's not a brand new story like the whole conflict with nero it's sort of both of those things bits of those things at the same time you want to just come back from break on that i was thinking you're trying to edit it in somewhere okay and, you know and just have that and then you know welcome back folks we're in the uncanny valley still <laughs>
welcome back, everyone. We are in the Uncanny Valley still, talking about Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> now, coming back from break here, I want to talk a little bit about a couple of the worlds that are visited in this movie. I was talking before about how I want a little more of the Strange New Worlds element of Star Trek, and we start actually on one of those worlds with the mission on Nibiru, which has lots of thrills and spills... You know, Spock in the volcano, the Enterprise underwater, which is a cool visual. Yeah. Yeah. And and the natives on the planet, which is sometimes a little uncomfortable in Star Trek stories. You know, they are kind of the stereotypical superstitious natives, right? Well... Sure. I suppose, but I mean, it's not like... I don't know, I'm... I'm not entirely comfortable using that label because it's not like it's an exception to the most common thing that a small group of people will have some sort of tribal god. I mean, that is sort of a common thing. It's not like something that one tribe on one corner of one continent did and now we're extrapolating to everyone in the universe. It's a relatively common thing for a small group of people to create some sort of mystical or spiritual or religious storytelling to explain the world around them. Yeah. And then when they see the Enterprise, they almost become like a cargo cult, right? In a way, yeah, because like Admiral Pike said, if you're in a society that's just barely invented the wheel and you see this giant thing fly out of the ocean and pass over you on the way to the volcano, that's going to have an impact. But yeah. again, I don't think that's necessarily denigrating the natives. Because, I mean, look what the English did with Halley's Comet in 1066. So... I don't think that's denigrating the natives or, like, looking down your nose at all those poor, ignorant savages that they see the Enterprise fly out of the ocean and straight into the volcano and come up with some sort of story surrounding it. Because, relatively modern humans, not even a thousand years ago, did the same thing about a comet that was millions of miles away, let alone a starship flying 200 feet overhead. So I don't think that's an insult or denigrating the natives in any way. I liked it because um, their directive to not disturb the native population is, is anti-colonialist, and that, that puts anti-colonialism in Starfleet's value systems, which I really, which, you know, Mitch, which makes me feel really good. Because um, especially when we think of, like, what exploration meant in the 16th and 17th centuries, it, it meant go there and take all the things and come back. And Starfleet's mission is go there and see what it is and mostly leave it alone if it's fine. Which, you know, sort of hopefully represents a, a furthering of of how we're going to be thinking about things as we travel more and more easily. And, of course, it's an echo of some of the Prime Directive stories in the original series where they landed on a planet and Kirk didn't like the way a society was run and so by the end of the episode he blew up their local god. Right. You know, where here it's a little more removed from that. It's not like a computer running the society or anything. It's a natural disaster that he's preventing, but it still kind of fits in with the principle of anti-colonialism, but also a sort of humanistic impulse, for lack of a better word, to prevent the needless and unnecessary deaths of so many people. Right. 
it's good that they have this anti-colonialist prime directive. And the prime directive is one of many things that was fairly progressive when they first created it in the 1960s and depressingly is still fairly progressive now in 2016. But the side effect of having this prime directive and having this anti-colonialist ideal is that the only stories we get to see are when that ideal is violated. Because encountering a planet and following the prime directive and then flying away is not an engrossing story you can tell for an hour. The engrossing story comes when other moral stances come in conflict with that prime directive, and then what do you do? Well, that Mm -hmm. conflict was worked out, especially a few times in The Next Generation, where they would really kind of struggle with it for some meaty swaths of an episode. In the original series, it was much more cavalier, like, we need to interfere in this because what's going on is wrong. Um, There are a lot of later Prime Directive stories that get a little more iffy in terms of saying that the Prime Directive requires our heroes on our intrepid ship to hold back from interfering to prevent abuses or, you know, various horrible things from happening. And then the conflict is, you know, we need to prevent these horrible things, but we have this principle that prevents us from doing so. Well, there are at least two Star Trek The Next Generation episodes that are focused on a world or a populace on a world that's going to be destroyed by natural disaster. And Captain Picard is fairly firm in proclaiming the Prime Directive demands that we do not interfere and allow this natural disaster to take place and allow this populace to be exterminated. That is what the Prime Directive says, and that's what will happen, because I'm the captain and I follow the Prime Directive. And I kind of like this movie that basically mirrors those two Next Generation stories and shows you, uh, Kirk, no, Kirk would just gallop on in there. Well, sometimes in, in Next Gen, those episodes involved a lot of problematic discourse about how the Prime Directive keeps you from interfering in the quote-unquote natural evolution of a species. You know, as if... Well, that's the whole idea. We should allow species to develop on their own as they're meant to rather than interfering with their development because we claim we know better. Right. That's the whole idea behind the Prime Directive. It's the meant to that I think is a little problematic. Well... uh... Maybe meant to isn't the right terminology to use, but it's base, It's about letting species develop on their own without the interference of the Federation. Right. Yeah, without, without taking advantage of the Federation's superior technology. Because exactly. that's the only reason they're there. Exactly, yeah. Even, even if you don't mean to take advantage of them, you can still sort of, you know, well, we know better than they do how their society should develop. And the whole point of the Prime Directive is to stop you from t- interfering if you think you know better than them. Right. Mm-hmm. Except, as we see in this movie, Kirk would just sort of say, well, the hell with that, I'm going to save lives if I can. Yeah, and and then kind of yeah. skip the whole conflict back home as he tries to. Yeah, this Kirk, we talked in a, several of the original series movies about how after Star Trek Three, Kirk is pretty firmly in don't-give-a-shit mode. This Kirk is already in don't-give-a-shit mode. Oh, he gives shits, just in an anti-authoritarian way which is exactly what pike is calling him out on in that scene the debriefing which by the way that debriefing scene has one of my favorite spock moments where he starts talking back to pike you know i i love the uh sassy spock as he's called uh in in these movies it's definitely an interesting take for spock to have yeah 
I also like that their little fight that Kirk and Spock are having, because Spock filed a report and Kirk's report is pretty, uh, <laughs> and it, like Spock genuinely didn't consider that Kirk might minimize the events in his report. Like, I just like how, I like how the backstabbing was super accidental. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Like, in what world would you not write exactly what happened? Because that's what we do when we're being moral. And, uh, <laughs> like, I, I, like, it, like that's a genuine character-based conflict that they have. And it is great to watch. Like, why are they fighting? Because of these fundamental things that they've set up before and are, and are fleshing out. They, they just, they, they always have the characters in the back of their minds when they're writing, which is why I'm so, so into this particular carriage of Star Trek. So, other than Nibiru, the other alien location that we have in this movie is, of course, Kronos, which is the first time we've seen it in this new series, and so there's a little bit to go into as far as the take that they have on the Klingons in this movie. Scott, what do you think generally about how they were using the Klingons here? I thought the Klingons were interesting. I th they're definitely very different from the original series, original timeline Klingons in a lot of ways. But I think, again, it's something you could see happening. It's not something that happened in the original timeline, but it's so, sort of an extraction you could see. They're, you know, wearing all this armor. They're heavily into piercings and body modification. Yeah, I loved that element. Klingons would totally be into body modification. Yeah, I could totally see Klingons getting heavy into piercings and stuff like that and that's that's a sort mm -hmm. of extrapolation that it's not anything that ever was hinted at in the original timeline but it's definitely something you could see happening it's it's definitely a plausible extraction of what the klingons are and how the klingon society structures itself that they would get heavily into piercing themselves and tattoos and other t types of body modification Especially since this isn't, like, a state-of-the-art crew from the Klingon Empire that's confronting them. It's basically a bunch of punks in a sparsely, if at all, populated region of the planet. Well, it's just like a local security patrol. Yeah. So I kind of like the fact that they're kind of like punk dirtbags again. Kind of like some of the Klingons in Star Trek V. Which also leads to Zoe Saldana's best scene in this movie when she kind of goes out alone to confront this big group of warriors. You know, mm -hmm. where, where she gets to use her linguistic knowledge and tries to engage a little bit with the Klingon culture, even if that engagement is basically restricted to saying the word honor a few times. <laughs> But it's a sort of strength that is really, really nice to see from the character of Uhura, which she doesn't really get enough, so I really value it when she does. Yeah. Well, Uhura, like pretty much every character that isn't Kirk and Spock, kind of gets short change in the movies. Yeah, that's, that's something we can run through, but all the other characters basically get a scene. Yeah. But that is definitely Uhura's scene, and she nails it. The other scene I like with Uhura, and it's not really her scene, but the scene in the turbo lift with her and Kirk right after they come on board the Enterprise, where mm -hmm. Kirk talks about some of his frustrations that he's having with Spock, and then he apologizes and says, it's, I'm, I'm sorry that was inappropriate to bring up with you just because he's your boyfriend, and so you have 
you know, it's not good that I'm sort of going behind his back to snipe about him to his girlfriend. And then she's sort of mad at him at the time. So she's like, no, that's fine. And they have this sort of interaction about, wow, what's that even like if the two of you fight? I thought that was a really good scene because it showed a lot of development from the first movie. Where in the first movie, the main relationship dynamic between Kirk and Uhura is Kirk is this frat boy douchebag that keeps hitting on her. Mm. And Uhura just keeps slapping him down because she's so much better than that dirtbag. <laughs> but now they clearly have this friendly crewmate relationship. If they're not friends themselves, they at least have this friendly co-worker crewmate relationship where they can talk about these things and sort of confide in each other a little bit and joke around together. And so that's clearly an advancement in their relationship. And I, I like, for all of the sort of frat boy, dude bro characterization they give Kirk in the first movie, and is a little bit in this movie as well, where he's just sort of, you know, in passing, hitting on every woman they walk past. This scene does show that, you know, that's not his overarching character trait. He's not like that all the time. He is capable of being friends with a woman and treating her with respect and apologizing when he recognizes that he's gone over a line and that he shouldn't cross in their relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like accepting their relationship as fact and not disrupting it. Alana, what do you think more generally about the relationship dynamics between Uhura and Spock in this movie? Well, I mean, it's easy to understand the attraction to Spock, I say, as a long time, you know. <laughs> I like the cold, nerdy ones. Um, I like that they're doing that fighting, not fighting thing because we're supposed to be at work. I, I feel like they used some humor, and it wasn't 100% at Uhura's expense. It's often at the woman's expense, like she's a harpy or whatever. Um, but she has a valid point, and she's trying to the best of her ability to keep her professional she does get catty when they're in their shuttle trying to get down to chronos and kirk is like are we really fighting doing this now um, but it does allow us to hear their fight um before we're in mortal peril which is nice i i would not have liked it to be inserted randomly in the midst of the mortal peril i'm glad they got to get their shoes on the right feet before they had to go fight yeah, that's another reason that I really like her scene with the Klingons, because I really value the scenes in these movies where Uhura gets to show off her skills, because it goes to show that she's not just Spock's girlfriend, which right. is a trap that they could very easily fall into in these movies. Yes, it is important for all those reasons, like you said, and I like the fearlessness with which she walks out with her weapon, which is language. Exactly. Yeah, and it is a very valuable skill. I actually, I enjoy that in the future, we still need linguistic specialists because we're just, technology, I, th I think, can never truly catch up to the sort of marvel of language diversity and, and how the nuance of it. So, like, she can't just, like, whip out a handheld whatever and speak to them and have it come out in Klingon and have that be valid. Like, you need someone who can speak directly in order to be an, an effective uh, ambassador or, you know, conduit between cultures. I just, I, I really like that that's still a thing um, hundreds of years from now. <laughs> Especially, like, and it also reminds me of um, when we we hear some from time to time that one of one of the problems with uh, the, the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq is, is uh, lack of interpreters. 
a lack of people who speak Pashto or speak Farsi or speak whatever languages are at hand uh, is a huge handicap, a huge handicap. And so I'm glad that it, you know, it, it makes, it solidifies why Uhuru's position on the ship is so key, being the polyglot on hand. <laughs> And I, and I like that there's not too too much relationship. Oh, the one the one thing I didn't like actually between Uhura and Spock, there was just one moment right after, or no, not right after, but like Spock is in the captain's chair when uh, Kirk is off ship, and he gives her an order to assemble people in in the med bay, and it, and we later find out that that's when he's taking the cryotubes out of the torpedoes. But like, inst- he, she doesn't say, "I, Captain." She says yes or sure all right. i don't know she says all right instead of yes captain and i wish she had said yes captain i never noticed that moment i'll have to keep an eye on it the next time i see the movie because we know scott's watching it again and glenn isn't <laughs> <laughs> oh i i actually will be watching it again soon because i recently found out uh by doing an experiment i didn't know i was running that one year is apparently the maximum amount of time someone can date me without watching Star Trek. Nice. And and so, like, some weeks ago, my boyfriend on his own, almost on his own, you know, whenever he messages me and I tell him I'm recording a Star Trek podcast, I guess it introduces the idea. But otherwise, on his own, just brought up, I ought to watch some Star Trek sometime. So, you know... And he wants to see the new movie as well, so I already watched the 09 movie with him, and we're going to watch Darkness probably just a few days after we're recording this. Nice. So he's probably not going to get all the AU references. No, highly unlikely. Um, let's get a little more into the characters and how some of them are used specifically. Obviously, the star of all these movies is going to be Captain Kirk, who is still kind of a dude bro sometimes. He's moving along in uh, baby steps, as it were. Like, Scott, you said with his relationship with Uhura, that has seen some progress, but he has still got a lot of the markers that he still had in the last movie. I mean, we still see him... Yeah, like, he accidentally didn't do any due diligence about the new science officer because she was pretty... That was pretty dumb. (laughs) Yes. Well, she did forge her transfer orders. So he looked at the order and said, oh, she has valid transfer orders, okay. He just didn't look into it further than that. No, but I mean, Spock reacts, you know, like a jilted boyfriend or something, you know, now that I'm back, she's redundant. Which, when did Spock get a specialty in advanced weaponry, number one? But also, Kirk's response, and yet the more the merrier, as if... Yeah, but she's a pretty lady, so we need her on the ship. I did add in my notes, because this is my favorite note to make on every movie, what are your thoughts on the love triangle of Spock and Carol Wallace competing for Kirk's affection to choose one of them as his science officer? Uh, I like that. I, I like any time they visit a man wanting the attention of another man because it used to be like so like it used to be such like a homophobia third rail in a story and now 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 we can see it and use it and read into it or not as much as we want and i really like it that's true that is definitely uh fanfic fodder (laughs) (laughs) hey hey, you know what if there's one sort of fanfic that they're going to indulge in for an entire movie instead of au's just make it slash 
I mean, you already know I'm buying the ticket, so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I like that he's all sort of off. Spock is all disturbed by her presence, and 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 you can kind of tell as a lover of Spock that it has nothing to do with her femaleness or physical anything. It just has to do with her rank and her, you know, toe stepping. And it is Spock who, like, further investigates her background and discovers the forgery that she made of her transfer order to get on board. Yeah. And discovers her true identity. Yeah. And he doesn't run to teach her and turn it in right away, um, which they make a point of. He brings it up when it becomes relevant. That's literally what he says. Like, I was waiting for it to be relevant, and now it is. Actually, let's talk a little bit about Carol Wallace slash Marcus. I know, Scott, that you are quite infatuated with her performance in uh, the first scene after they get aboard the ship. Oh, yes. When when Kirk and Scotty are arguing about the torpedoes and arguing with the people delivering the torpedoes, Carol Marcus is sort of in the background behind the torpedo. And every time I watch that scene, I get distracted by her because she's standing there in the background and she has, like, a, one of those pad computers and, like, a stylus. And she sort of, like, sucks on the end of the stylus while looking up at the ceiling. And she twiddles a finger in her hair. And she's just totally acting like a complete ditz throughout that scene as, like, I guess a way of blending into the background. I didn't notice. Oh, I cannot get over it. It is so... It's so funny to me watching her in that scene. She spends the whole time, she's like twirling her finger in her hair. She's sort of looking up at the ceiling like, oh, I don't know what's going on around me. She is totally acting like a stereotypical blonde ditz throughout that entire scene in the background while Kirk and Scotty and intermittently the people delivering the torpedoes are arguing about the torpedoes. It is, it is so funny just to watch her in that scene. While really her main priority at that point is just to be near those torpedoes as much as possible. Yeah, be near the torpedoes. Don't get recognized by the Section 31 people delivering the torpedoes. (laughs) Oh yeah, that too. She's, She's just totally trying to blend into the background by acting like a stereotypical blonde ditzy person. And, and it's just so funny watching her in that scene. Nice. And you can see she's sort of... I don't know if it's a persona she's trying to use, because she's not really doing it on the shuttle. But when Spock first confronts her with her true identity, she sort of tries to play dumb. She's, like, examining the torpedo, and then when she notices Spock's there, she totally, like, tries to pretend she wasn't doing intense scientific analysis. It goes, oh, Mr. Spock, you startled me. Lean into that damsel thing. It just, it doesn't work on Spock. She she has yet to learn. No, it doesn't work on Spock. (laughs) I was sort of bothered by the get my father on the phone thing. Like, the way they set it up, nobody was anticipating that he would try to beam her off the ship, but it seemed pretty obvious of a move from Admiral Robocop to beam her off the ship so he could finish the ship. And they just, they didn't address the danger of that. Yeah, there are a few things in this movie that are very coincidental or arbitrary to kind of move the plot along. And right in that moment, they needed some reason for Admiral Robocop to stop destroying the Enterprise. So there's a scene where she stops him from destroying the Enterprise, and then immediately after that, they need another reason to keep him from destroying the Enterprise, and so Scotty shows up. 
Which is a, yeah. a great moment. Oh, Scotty is so good in this movie. Scotty is great in this movie. Simon Pegg is great in this movie. You know, he, really is, he is really someone who shines like whenever he gets some material to work with in these movies. I said in the last podcast that casting Simon Pegg as Scotty does sort of slot him in permanently as the comic relief character. And there's a little bit of that in this movie, but he also carries sort of the moral weight in the beginning of the story. He's the one that says, no, we can't use these torpedoes. We don't know what the hell these things are. They're just sort of being foisted off on us. We can't trust these things. We can't use these things without investigating them first. For the love of God, Jim, do not use those torpedoes. Scotty is really carrying the moral weight of the story throughout that scene and throughout the early part of the film, trying to build Kirk's doubts about this plan. Spock is sort of arguing it from the legal sense that, you know, extrajudicial execution is wrong, but Scotty is really the one presenting the moral argument. That, you know, think about what you're doing. Think about right and wrong, and not just your vengeance. And also, you don't know what it is, and thus you can't know the consequence. And we can't be doing things where we don't know the consequence. Yeah, definitely. And then he's slotted a little more into the comic relief role in the bar scene later on with Captain James Tiberius' perfect hair. And his sort of frenetic energy during the space jump sequence. But then, again, at the end of the movie, in the kind of prelude to the Kirk death scene when he calls Spock to engineering and he drops his voice down and he's completely serious and it just creates such a contrast from the rest of his performance. Oh, yeah. Scotty, in that whole ending sequence when Kirk is dying and then when he's dead and they bring him to sickbay, because Scotty is in that sort of gray sort of dress uniform looking shuttlecraft uniform and we'll get Mm -hmm. to how many more new uniforms they present in this movie. But he's wearing that sort of gray, sort of dress uniform looking shuttlecraft uniform as opposed to everyone else who's wearing like the bright blue, bright red, bright yellow Enterprise duty uniforms. So he almost acts like an honor guard for Kirk dying and then for Kirk's body as he dies in the engineering chamber. And then even when they bring him to sickbay, he's still standing there behind McCoy. It really strikes me almost as if he's an honor guard for Kirk's body because he's in that more sort of dark gray dress uniform looking uniform yeah he does he does a lot and he does it really well i also like the moment where kirk throws him around house so that he won't stop him from entering the uh warp court and then fastens his seatbelt real quick i was so into that yeah that is something that i've seen a lot of fans latch on to kirk as a caring parental figure for the crew You know, there are people who concentrate on scenes where Kirk is carrying injured crew members around or where he's generally being that sort of paternal figure in a way. That always strikes me as sort of odd because Kirk is one of the youngest crew members. Yeah, but he's the captain. I mean, he's the captain, but I mean, there's a scene where like, there's that scene where Sulu has like his moment of sitting in the captain's chair and threatening John Harriman. And then at the end of the movie, Kirk comes on, and Kirk is like, well, you know, the chair feels pretty good. You get used to it quickly, don't you? And Zulu's like, yeah, maybe someday I'll sit in the chair. And Kirk's like, yes, someday you'll sit in that chair. Kirk is eight years younger than Sulu. Or at least Chris Pine is eight years younger than John Cho. So the dynamic of that scene is just weird to me. 
And and again, you know, Chris Pine is younger than um Simon Pegg, so it's sort of weird to me him acting, you know, as like a protective parent of a guy who's older than him. Well, that's another part of Kirk's characterization in both of these latest movies, is that he is in a lot of ways still a child and he's trying to be an adult and he's doing some more of those caring things in this movie with the seatbelt and such and encouraging Sulu. But a lot of the characterization of Kirk concentrates on a sort of coming-of-age deal where the thing that he has to learn is how to take responsibility. Yeah, I mean, they go over it with through Pike's character. Like, he has amazing instincts as a captain, and, and his instincts are all about the caretaking. Like, the captain has multiple jobs. Caretaking is one of them. He's naturally good at it, and he's been excellent at it. His risk assessment is terrible, and that's where they keep trying to check him. And, and like, in, in the dressing down that they give him like this is actually really incredible like it's really well written when when pike says you keep using blind luck as a justification for a good outcome like as though luck wasn't a factor and it was like you're you're not properly crediting luck with all this shit and that's exactly the problem but but we can tell as we watch him in these first two films why his crew is dedicated to him even though he is young he maybe gets them into too many scrapes but once they're in them he's there for every single person on board Well, they make a point of mentioning he hasn't, on however long he's commanded the ship since the first movie, he has not lost a crew member on Mm. duty until Mm. Admiral Robocop shoots the hell out of the ship and all these people get sucked out into space. Yeah, that that was something that really struck me, that just a throwaway line about how there aren't any red shirts now, even though they engage that a little bit when Kirk tells Chekhov to go put on the red shirt, and he almost looks at the camera. Yeah, Chekhov looks like he just got a death sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But that exact connection with the crew was probably one of Admiral Pike's justifications for keeping him on as first officer, and not sending him back to the Academy for violating the Prime Directive? I mean, what is this, Star Trek Twelve back in training? Yeah, they really... We didn't really get into this in the last episode, but they really play fast and loose with ranks and assignments in this universe. And it does sort of go along with an idea that Gene Roddenberry said once... And Gene Roddenberry had a lot of ideas that were absolutely unworkable, and they never even tried to incorporate them into any of the shows or movies because they were so unworkable. But one of the ideas Gene Roddenberry had once was where he said that Starfleet ranks aren't really ranks, they're just job descriptions. And so, and that sort of fits the way they treat ranks in this series, where Kirk is a cadet, and Pike just sort of by fiat makes him first officer. And then once Spock resigns as captain, boom, Kirk is the captain now. Not because he's actually attained the rank of captain, but just because he's in charge, so he's a captain. And once he's no longer a captain, well, then he goes back to the academy. Because he hasn't achieved any rank. Are you saying that in that way these movies are very true to the spirit of Gene Roddenberry? The way, the cavalier way they treat rank and assignments does bear some resemblance to this one completely unworkable idea Roddenberry had once. Take that, hater brigade. 
Well, there's also what the ranks mean on ship and off ship. Like off ship, nobody gives a crap about it and they play fast and loose. But on ship, that's the organizational structure. And that's how you keep things running. That's how you run a, a core. You need to know who is, you need to know the, the line. And so, yeah, on, on ship, it all matters. But how, how people get the, the rank, which is usually determined off ship, is <laughs> definitely fast and loose. It is interesting to note that when Kirk is removed from captain and sent back to the academy, and then Pike pulls him back out of the academy to be his first officer, and then brings him to that meeting with Admiral Robocop, Kirk, on his shoulder epaulets, is that how you say that word? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's still wearing captain's rank insignia at that point. Oh. Technicalities. <laughs> Also, he's kicked off the ship and sent back to the Academy nominally. Pike brings him in as first officer. Pike gets killed, and Admiral Robocop reinstates him as captain and reinstates Spock off the USS Bradbury to be first officer. All of that happens within, like, a few hours, like, overnight at the most. So, one of the things that struck me the last time I saw this movie was, how much do you think the rank-and-file crew of the ship actually knew about all these shakeups at the top? Like, oh, not that much. Yeah, like some junior grade lieutenant in stellar cartography, did he realize that Pike was his captain for 24 hours? Yeah, exactly. Like, for them, they got back from the Nibiru mission, and then this attack happened on Earth, Kirk came back to the ship, and they went off to Kronos. Basically. <laughs> yeah. Both of these movies take yeah. place over an incredibly abbreviated period of time. Mm-hmm. Like, really, only a day or two. It's true. Oh, and I was going to say, they do take the rank seriously on ship. Um, You don't really... Like, in the first one, in the first act, when the original Kelvin captain is leaving the bridge to go to the transport and meet with Eric Bana, everyone stands aside, even though the ship is fucking on fire. Like, they stand aside to let him pass. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but even in that scene... It's actually kind of touching because the ship is on fire. Yeah. But even in that scene, they have what's sort of one of the iconic lines of that movie is when Captain Robow says to the person he's leaving in charge, I'm not the captain now, you are. Which, from the way that ranks are treated in the original timeline, is an insane thing to say. Just as the captain travels off the ship for ten minutes and leaves his first officer or a junior officer in charge while he's gone, that doesn't mean he's the new captain. But the way I mean, acting way. captain is a serious thing. But I mean, every time Kirk beamed down to a planet didn't make Spock the acting captain. It just made him in command while Kirk was gone. But they treat that very differently in these movies. Right, I mean, you're the captain now. That is definitely like a... Because I'm not coming back and I know it. But maybe, I, maybe I'm buying your lives with mine. So, the other big piece of business that Kirk gets in this movie is when he loses another father figure. He really can't keep a father figure around when uh, Admiral Pike is killed in the attack on Starfleet headquarters. Mm -hmm. I think it could have been a really interesting dynamic, actually, if Pike had actually come back as captain with Kirk as first officer. I think that could have been a really neat thing to explore. That would have been a neat thing to explore, but I don't think you have time to explore that in a movie. I suppose. Like, if this was a 13-hour television season, then you can spend a couple of hours with Kirk as Pike's first officer. But in a trying-to-be-a-two, two-and-a-half-hour movie, you don't really have time to fit that in. 
Well, if it's a, if it's a TV series, you probably don't kill major characters. Although Damon Lindelof is writing this movie, so yeah. Now this is something we actually disagreed on. I would say that the way they use Pike in this movie, where they just sort of show him as the mentor figure and then kill him as motivation for Kirk, is basically the exact same way they treat Winona Ryder in the first movie. You can't fridge a man. Doesn't work that way. What's the difference between how they treated Amanda in the first movie and how they treat Pike in this one? The fact that this movie was being made in a patriarchal society. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get into the, the philosophical argument, but I'm just saying that is exactly what they use him for. They introduce him as the mentor, and then they kill him to motivate the character. Also, Pike already had an entire movie of being Kirk's mentor under his belt. So, you know, not only does it nominally mean more, but there's a lot more development that went into it. Also, they have to clear the field for Marcus to be the voice of Starfleet, and they can't, they can't let Pike... Pike can't be there for that reason, the way they've chosen to tell the story. But, like, they could have done that with wounding him rather than killing him, but whatever. I liked that actor, too. I'm sorry to see the end of the character. It was a good one. Yeah, Bruce Greenwood, I think, did a great job as Pike in both of these movies. We mentioned how Kirk is sort of... He's still shown as sort of a dude-bro frat boy a lot of the time, but they're sort of developing him beyond that. And one thing I notice is that every time he starts to act like that sort of stereotypical frat boy-ish character, he totally embarrasses himself. Mm -hmm. Like, particularly when he captures John Harriman, Harrison. I make that mistake so much. I thought, I thought you were just trying to get me to laugh again. When he captures John Harrison... And he's like, you know, on behalf of Christopher Pike, I accept your surrender. And then he tries to beat him up and just fails spectacularly. Oh, God. Until finally Kirk and Uhura, like, pull him back. Like, okay, you're not accomplishing anything here. Let's just bring him back to the ship. And they also show, like, however they're characterizing him, he's still, like, two steps ahead of everyone else in terms of strategic thinking. Because out of everybody, all of the captains and first officers in the sector are at this meeting with Admiral Robocop. He's the only one that figures out what Harrison's actually trying to do. It's just mm -hmm. barely not quite in time to actually do anything about it. But the entire Starfleet command for the sector is gathered in this room, and Kirk is the only one that figures out what's going on. Our heroes always have to. There's also, they also left room in the story for Marcus to actually know what was going to happen and calling the meeting anyway. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that, but that's possible. You mean the attack on Starfleet headquarters was an inside job? Or not prevented in the aim of serving the goal of being at war. Yeah, killing off all the captains and first officers in the sector would be a good way to motivate Starfleet to strike back. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's talk about the evil admiral of the week a little bit, actually. I freaking love when they get him on comm, and Kirk has his cards that Khan supplied, and then they they chat for a bit, and then Admiral Marcus is like, "Oh shit, you talked to him!" <laughs> like, <laughs> man, I wish you hadn't done that, because I think he still sees inherent value in Kirk as a captain and as especially as a young captain like potentially coachable into his way of seeing things especially since he accepts them he, he he appears to have accepted the mission to torpedo john harrison on site like that would have been a way to 
that would have been a reason for uh, Admiral Robocop to be interested in, in saving him as a resource. And then, like, the, the reveal that, you know, he did not do the mission correctly. He spoke to Khan at length, and he's like, oh, man, like, I thought you were... I wish I didn't have to set you on fire, but unfortunately I do. Like, I, I, I think he struck that note really well. Well, if Marcus is going to start a war with the Klingons, he needs starship commanders like Jim Kirk. Exactly. exactly. Like, he, man, I wish I hadn't done that. He needs commanders like a Jim Kirk who would just accept his orders and go torpedo Kronos. Right. Or right, a Jim right, right. Kirk who wouldn't think things through and would just act on his thirst for vengeance rather than stopping to consider the rule of law and stopping to consider the moral implications of what he's doing. They, yeah, exactly. Right. He needs Jim Kirk without Spock and Scotty on the ship. Yeah, oh. That's true. That's true. Interesting. I liked his performance, and he has a hell of a death scene. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things that I always wondered about. Do you think that John Harrison tore off his head or just kind of smashed it in? No, crushed it. Crushed yeah, I, it. Yeah, I always thought the same, but I think I was talking to someone, I don't remember who it was, who thought that he just, like, decapitated him or something. Either way, really. <laughs> Either way, just as well that it's off screen. Yeah, they were hanging on tight to that PG-13. The way they punch each other and don't draw blood is uh, conspicuous. <laughs> uh, at times, yeah. I found Admiral Robocop kind of distracting because I'm so used to seeing Peter Weller in other contexts. And he's so distinctive as Peter Weller. Like I just mm. kept expecting him to be Peter Weller and not Admiral Marcus. And it, it, it was sort of distracting a little bit in those scenes. Well, that's going to happen whenever you have someone who is, like, a genuinely known character actor who winds up in Star Trek. Yeah. Like whenever James Cromwell would show up. Even under 10 pounds of latex, you know, this random alien started speaking and, holy crap, that's James Cromwell. <laughs> Yeah, or like there's a couple of uh, sci-fi projects coming up where it's going to be like, find Idris Elba, because he's going to be inc- very made-up slash CGI enhanced, but he'll be there. <laughs> we'll get to that next time. Yeah, <laughs> when we do our reaction show for Star Trek Beyond. See, this is something we'll discuss next time after we actually see Beyond, but just based on the character profile and Beyond, why would you get a recognizable, well-known actor like Idris Elba and then bury him under latex i don't know i mean isn't the whole point of having him i mean part of the point of having him is he's a great actor but isn't also part of the point of having idris elba in your movie so that you can say hey look we've got idris elba in the movie wouldn't you want him to be recognizable find idris elba i don't know well that was part of the dynamic of this movie as well where they got boiler dang crackerjack and then a lot of the emphasis on that was, hey, look, we got Burberry Crimpy Snitch to be in our movie. Come see him in our movie. As someone who was in a whole lot of properties and still is, I mean, he's got that reputation now that he's just in everything. I have to take points off because you've now used Burberry as his first name twice. No! Yes. Damn! I gotta say, this movie, seeing this movie was my event horizon for fandom of him because i had known him only as sherlock and i forgot about sherlock and i love sherlock passionately but it's just like he was really somebody else and uh my uh, appreciation for his acting skills created a, a more comprehensive appreciation of his entire being but um 
like some of the dialogue for Khan is kind of ridiculous, but he is there for it. Like he is there to sell it. Oh, he lays into his dialogue so bad. He he really lays into it a lot. I found his character a little one note. Other than that yes. scene in the brig where he's suddenly really sympathetic, he's just kind of snarling for most of the length of the movie. You know, if if you get an actor of the caliber of Brundlefly Cabbage Patch in your movie, you can find, hopefully, some more things for him to do. Well, I definitely sort of get the impression that he's not exactly giving his all in this role. Like, he is not devoting 100% of his acting capability to fleshing out the inner torment of Khan. He's just sort of showing up and doing his lines and cashing the check oh, and then moving on to some disagree. other... Disagree. Disagree. That tear, though. The glory tear. And he's vibrating with rage the whole time. It takes a lot of energy to vibrate with rage. (laughs) Well, he does have a way, in terms of acting, of opening his mouth all the way for every syllable when he's trying to be especially menacing. He sort of just completely over-enunciates every syllable he says, a lot like the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. Um, Yes. Elena, I know you are the number one fan, so please (laughs) indulge yourself. Oh, no, I mean, that's completely valid critique of his performance. You could fairly characterize it as scenery chewing. Like, it's a lot. But to me, he takes it right up to the line and leaves it instead of pushing it too far and having me not enjoy it anymore because I'm just like, you're being silly right now. Like, the character is pretty over the top the way they've written him. And then Benedict, I'll go ahead and call him that, is right there. The level of over the top that you can still be and have it work. Um, It's right there. And I I remember reading some background on this um, where he decided that Khan wasn't going to blink when he was talking. And he uses that very well. If you don't know that he's doing that, maybe you don't notice, but it it also underscores the menace of both his word choice and the actual delivery of the dialogue, which involves a lot of lip movement and jaws and all that kind of stuff. He he is a very physical actor. I mean, you mentioned vibrating with, with rage and just the way... Like you say that he moves his jaw as he's talking. It's like a snake. It reminds me of a snake unhinging his jaw. It's very menacing. He's like a <sighs> slithery, slithery snake. <laughs> no, like sorry, just sorry. Like full, full of danger. Like you can't take your eyes off of him because he's dangerous. Like he's done that by being super reptilian and super like. I don't know. Like, I don't think he was just cashing his check. I think he was practicing some other stuff. Well, and also, I think he was. I think he was figuring out if he could, in fact, be one of those guys who can be contracted to gain fifty pounds and be an action hero, and then like not do that the next project, which he proved for this project. <laughs> Maybe not fifty, but definitely thirty-five. Like, well, you mentioned that he seemed reptilian. <laughs> I actually was sort of reminded of some of that mocap raw footage of him as Smaug. Oh, totally. Actually, yeah. That's a good point. I mean, the only thing that was missing was cr- him crawling around on the floor. Which, yeah. you know, might have been a little more compelling, actually, if he's in the break kind of crawling around the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I, I, don't, I don't mean to make fun too much. I, I, I think, he makes fun you of- know, he's, he's obviously a, a very compelling actor, but... Also, what the shit were they doing with that hairstyle? 
that piece of bang that's always flopping into his face would would actual Khan really stand for that shit? I don't think he would. <laughs> that's something to consider, definitely. And somehow, no matter where he goes or where he finds himself, he always manages to find a nearby trench coat. Oh yeah, we gotta. Ha- that was funny, actually. Picking up the random coat as if a random coat would fit him when he was in his <laughs> linebacker phase. The other thing I was going to say is uh, when we first actually get to speak to Harrison on Kronos, like he he has that huge weapon that looks incredibly heavy. Um, he has two of them, and then he approaches them. They're you know their backs are against the wall, and he just wiped out all the all the Klingons essentially single hand. And he's approaching them, and Kirk tells spock to stand down which i appreciated like like don't even did you even watch this scene that just unfolded spock like don't even and he shoots the like uh he shoots the weapon out of spock's hands but then he's he's asked the question how many of them are there and the way he the way he the way he drops both weapons and says i surrender there's a lot a lot of performance right there like the the eagerness with which he throws them to the side like because he's excited to get back with them. Like he processes it and then he chucks both weapons. I I don't know. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I mean, really what he should have done was try to convince Kirk to unfreeze a couple more of his comrades and then take over the ship and stick Kirk in a vacuum chamber. Oh, and then the other thing I, the other thing I liked about it was, um, about, uh, Burmble's snoot, Cram, cramble snack. Um, that when he's on the bridge in the vengeance, and he's describing that he's gonna get his own crew back by suffocating the Enterprise's crew. Like that's cold. Like that is horrific. Yeah, that line. I will walk over your cold corpses. That is definitely creating an image. Yeah, and it's an outrageous line, right? Like not any, not everyone can sell that line, and he's. He's his dial is on eleven when he's giving it to us, and it should be too much, but somehow is right there, and I'm not distracted. I'm just like, oh god, Kirk, you're in so you're in so much fucking trouble. <laughs> oh, and I like how I also like how he f- broke Carol's femur. I think I think he stamped on it. Yikes! <laughs> it's hard to break a femur. <laughs> Brutal but effective. Yeah. Yeah, and mostly because she was in the way. yeah so like him is the big bad like i just i also just really celebrate that he got that job because it changed his entire career and he's deserving of it of course he's very talented but and and but to come back to a place of critique for my very favorite actor ever um i do wish that he would not take projects with political problems but he has so far not taken that upon himself like i wish him and his agent would think about it a little bit more now that he has superstar power. Yeah, that is definitely a factor. Yeah, we don't hold the actors themselves responsible for this kind of stuff. Like, oh, it was casting. But like at a certain point, you can turn down jobs. And he's definitely at that point. Yeah, when an he actor... Wasn't, when was an, not in 13, I would say. But now he is. When an actor is prominent enough that mm-hmm. they have the power to do so, I think it's fair to expect them to. Possibly for for this movie, I think that's a much better point about Doctor Strange. Yeah, I wish he had declined Doctor Strange, and I never wish him to decline anything, but he should have declined it. 
Any other characters we should talk about? I love John Cho always in Forever. Yeah, he's another actor who got one scene and made the most of it. Yeah. Well, that's basically what all the underlings do in these movies, other than Kirk and Spock and sometimes McCoy. They each get, like, one scene, and it's up to them how much they make of it. Yeah, McCoy in this movie really didn't get a whole lot. He got little... No, he is more in the first one. Yeah, he got little character bits, like when he's obnoxiously trying to scan Kirk, and when he starts trying to flirt with Carol Marcus, which is, like, the most awkward thing ever. See, I liked that, because I didn't take it seriously at all. No, exactly. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm not saying it's awkward on the part of the script. I'm saying it's awkward on the part of the character. See, I, I mean, Bones is pretty awkward, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. See, I didn't think of it as being awkward so much as just sort of astonishingly blatant. Like, so blatant that you're not actually trying to flirt. And it's almost like he's trying to flirt as blatantly as Kirk does. It's really ham-fisted, which is hilarious because we're talking about how he has surgeon's hands. It's pretty funny. Like, I don't know. I liked the irony there. And I, I just love I love how Carl Urban can make the damn and I'm a doctor, not a blank thing. It works every time I hear it. And I'm so delighted every time I hear it. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and that, that's taking something ancient that has nothing to do with him and reclaiming it beautifully. So shout out to Carl Urban. Oh, and also back on John Cho, I like how they, they choose to credit alphabetically at the end so that John Cho is top bill. That just thrills me every time I see it. He's the top, the top build uh, actor because he has the the surname that comes first. But it's just like it's just a nice little shakeup in presentation to have an alphabetical billing. But he he is really great, and he has, they all have humor chops too. Like their Sulas are not on display in this one, but in the first one when when he says he has combat training, and then he says actually it's fencing on the way down to the drill in the first one. Yes, <laughs> that is so perfect. And then I love that the fencing then becomes relevant because the two of them uh, have broadswords, for lack of a better word, for a second when they're down there. And it's like, oh, thank God they brought a fencer. <laughs> like, it's just so, it's really dorky in a classic way that I appreciate. Oh, and I love that uh, Chekhov is actually a little Russian dude. I love hearing his accent in English so much. Yeah, like the diversity dream of 1960s Star Trek like is alive and well in the in the reboot and I I just love it. I like I like to see it a lot. Yeah, that's one of the things that people kind of hit it on is that it is in a lot of ways precisely as diverse as the show was in the 60s and sometimes not as diverse in terms of like crowd scenes and background players the tv show tended to have more people of color in some of the background roles and even the smaller roles like dr mabenga and such whereas these movies with the sort of main cast that they have hewing closely to the original series in that way has a lot of the precise diversity in the main cast as it had in the 60s and not you know what one might expect ideally of a 21st century production Mm, yeah that's i hear what you're saying that's true like they're nodding to canon but or maybe you're not progressing further than that well that's always the sort of trap you fall into when you're making a new version of a thing that's from 1960 is that you're sort of stuck with the character descriptions they had in 1960 to a large extent yeah 
That's also one of the things that I was thinking about when we were doing the last movie, seeing how much they inflated the importance of Captain Pike with great results. I just kind of thought that maybe they could have spent a little effort on also inflating the importance of some of the roles that women had on the original series as well. I mean, Nurse Chapel is mentioned in the background in the last movie, and in this movie she is retroactively written off and Kirk doesn't appear to know who she is. You know? I don't I, know who that is. Uh, she, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there that, you go. That's fair. Uh, she was the head nurse in the TV show. Oh, still working under bones. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, but also having a, a backbone and a character of her own in a lot of ways. Maybe they'll find her in a later production. Uh, one would hope. Uh, yeah, uh, the same for Yeoman Rand, who, to be fair, was only in the first five or six episodes um, before an unfortunate thing happened with Grace Lee Whitney and the producers. But, you know, again, there there are characters who can be brought into this still. Oh, is that the one where they wanted her to essentially be on Fen Fen the whole time she was working? I believe so, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, I read something about that. That's a reason to quit a job. <laughs> I'm not really sure how well that would have worked. I mean, given the way that large parts of the fandom already revolted against the Spock-Uhura relationship, how well would it have worked to bring back Nurse Chapel, whose primary character motivation was that she had a crush on Spock? Well, yes. Um, I would really hope to not have an obnoxious, stupid love triangle there, but... Because Glenn loves love triangles, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and also, we've had this argument about Pike versus Yeoman Rand before. I really... When you're making the movie about how the crew comes together on the ship, and you have two characters who you could feature, and one of them is the previous captain from before Kirk took over, and the other one is the Yeoman who got his coffee for a few episodes, I really don't see how you can criticize them for choosing the captain. It's not a zero-sum game. I'm just using Pike as an example of a character whose importance was greatly inflated to be used in a different way in the movie. I'm just saying that they could have chosen to also feature other characters a little more prominently than they were sometimes in the TV show, or at all. You're... She could have been a member of the crew, at least. You're still looking at it backwards, though. They didn't choose Pike and say, hey, let's use more of Pike. They needed the previous captain to be there for Kirk to take over from, and then they went looking through character lists. Hey, is there a name from the original series we can slap on this captain? Again, I'm not suggesting Yeoman Rand for the role of the previous captain. I'm saying they can inflate a character's importance. They chose to inflate the importance of a man. That's all I'm saying. I don't think they did that. They wrote a character who is the previous captain who Kirk takes over for, and then they went and looked for a name to slap on him. They didn't choose a character yeah. and then inflate well, their importance. It's also a, it's also it possible. There's been a female character and it wasn't. I'm I'm sorry, Elaine. I think I was talking over you there. Oh, I was just gonna say. I I think what what Glenn is saying is they could have written they could have written that as a female mentor and female character found a female background, and they didn't because they we default yeah. to dudes. That we default to dudes, and we're if we're not interrogating that, then we're falling into it. Yeah, they, they could have had a, a I woman... I think that's that... a very different argument than saying, oh, they inflated the importance of Pike instead of Rand. No, I'm saying they inflated the importance of Pike. They could have inflated the importance 
of someone else as well, or at least had her present. I don't believe it's correct to say they inflated the importance of Pike. He was a major part of these two movies, where in the TV show, he was a background player in a two-parter, where in the main timeline, he was stuck in a wheelchair and not even played by his actor. He was an extremely, 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 extremely minor part of the show. Again, you're looking at it backwards. Whatever. Okay. Like, I think I think another another way to, to say what Glenn is saying is that they didn't sit around and be like, hey, let's mine Captain Pike from the original series and rewrite him, because that doesn't make sense given how minor Captain Pike is, is in the original series. That leads to Scott's point, which is let's find a name from the original series that works for this dude character that we wrote. And it leaves unquestioned, did it have to actually be a dude who was the mentor? It could have been... That that was an opportunity to have another kind of character, whether it was a, whether it was an original character who maybe would be female or, or a female character from the original series, right? Kind of. Yeah, that's yeah, that's actually <laughs> looking at the way that it probably actually happened and criticizing something they actually did rather than criticizing a thing that I don't think they actually did. Or, if you wanted to have Nurse Chapel at least be in the movie, she could have been experimenting on things in sickbay rather than McCoy making an entirely arbitrary decision just because the plot necessitates it to inject Khan's superblood into a rando triple he happens to have. I, I really... I don't have... I have no idea where you're coming from saying that Dr. McCoy confronted with a medical mystery would conduct an experiment to figure out what it is and calling that totally random, only happening because the plot demanded it. He took a blood sample from a prisoner and decided to inject it in a dead Tribble? Does he do that for all the prisoners they have on the ship? All of the prisoners whose blood displays these signs that they reproduce like nothing else, and he wonders what that effect that would have on a necrotic host. I mean, the super blood is irredeemably stupid anyway. Yes. Yes, it is. But that's a whole other thing. It's a bit oversimplified, which I don't mind, frankly. I don't think we needed an extra 20 minutes where they talked about how to extract properties from the blood and extract certain compounds out of his blood that could be applied to other things. I, I'm fine with them sort of simplifying it and going with it. I don't need 20 minutes of technobabble to explain what properties of his blood they are trying to duplicate and how they go about duplicating it. And just do what they did and move on. Well, I don't know that anyone proposed such a sequence, but having super blood in the movie at all, I'm saying, is irredeemably stupid. It's stupid. I am with Scott on that. It's cheap. In what way? I just I miss a story where there's someone who is gifted but is still human. Like Khan is supposed to be an enhanced human, right? And I I like it better if he is a regular human with an incredibly bad attitude and a lot of combat skills. Like it. it him being enhanced means he can have all these fights and stuff, but it's just like, I don't know. I, the fantasy of seeing someone who can't, who won't get knocked down. Like I'm just kind of over it. I mean, I have, I have a little bit of Marvel oversaturation of course, but I just miss when it's just like a regular person who has problems. Does not make any sense at all? Like, like why, why is he so dangerous? Well, he's so dangerous because he's so smart. So whatever, but also PS he's enhanced. He has superhuman strength and endurance. Well, well that's the, great. Like, 
once they decided to do Khan, they were kind of stuck with that aspect of it, too. Right, sure. Yeah, that is the whole story of Khan, is that he's genetically engineered to have superior intelligence, superior strength, superior endurance. Yeah. The super soldier gone wrong, I guess, is just a trope. We're not going to lose anytime soon. And I guess we'll always have Steve Rogers to be the super soldier gone right. Depending on which comic books you read. Right. <laughs> I'm ignoring that other one. Yeah. I'd like to touch on a couple more issues that this movie and this new series of movies has in terms of its use and representation of women. Especially, Alana, since you're here, I definitely want your perspective on these, since I would kind of devalue mine. What do you make of the bra scene? I rolled my eyes, if that says anything. Okay, there's two things going on. There's the whole thing about, like, why a woman posing in underwear on the cover of a magazine is different from a woman's underwear selfie being leaked to social media, and the difference is consent. So, like, when we tell someone to turn their back, it means we don't want to be looked at. So there's just Kirk with, like, a, you know, a low-level consent violation just to play into the dude bro thing. However, in this exact circumstance, I can't actually believe that Carol would tell him to turn his back for no reason and expect him to keep his back turned. What the fuck is she doing over there? What is she doing over there? And especially since they just had a discussion about her not being who she says she is. Why are we turning our back with no reason? If she had said, turn your back, I'm changing my clothes, and he turned around, that's, that's an entirely different discussion. You just made every point that I was going to make about this scene. Thank you very much. I You're welcome. It's, it's absolutely correct that this scene has no reason to be in the movie, but I really think you place that blame entirely on the writers. I don't think that Kirk, the character actually did anything i mean he probably i don't think that he doesn't know what she's doing exactly so he wasn't trying he was not trying to peep he didn't know there was something to peep at yes that's the word i couldn't think of kirk and he kirk the character is not like trying to sneak a look at her in this scene he is curious as to what this subordinate crew member who we've already established lied about her identity to sneak on board what is she doing behind his back? If she had said, turn around so I can change uniforms into the shuttlecraft uniform, that would have been a totally different thing. But she doesn't tell him that. She just says, turn around so I can do something sneaky behind your back. So, And, and that being said, he could have turned back around faster. I will say that. Well, yes, obviously. <laughs> but, and that that's another Kirk thing. Like That, that's, that was yeah. done so that they could show Alice Eve in her underwear for longer. Which is very cheap. It's just, that's very cheap. But I don't actually like, There's blame... no need for any of that. No, there's no need for this scene to exist at all. But I don't actually blame Kirk for the actions he takes in this scene. I place that blame 100% on the writers for creating this scene in the first place. Oh, yeah. yes. But I've seen people cite this scene as, oh, Kirk is such a creepy peeping Tom... He should be he should be arrested for peeping at her and at the very least kicked out of Starfleet for sexual harassment. I no, I don't get any of that out of the scene. I don't think. I mean, the whole circumstance is kind of artificially constructed to excuse everything. But in these circumstances, I don't think Kirk actually did anything wrong, except possibly he should have collected his wits and turned back around faster. Yeah, it was just gratuitous display of Alice Eve on the part of the production on a whole, which 
I can't decide what I because that's like a it's sort of an action movie trope. So that, did they throw it in there for that reason? Like it's not quite in the Kirk flirts with everyone because he does and he did with her, but like that's not what this moment is about. And it, it I just it, it doesn't it's just a false note, I guess. Yeah, the whole scene really doesn't have any reason for existing other than the writers and the producers going, hee hee, we can see Alice even her underwear. Right. Yeah. That being said, I, I am glad, like, if they were going to do it and have Kirk do that, I am glad that she didn't tell him what he was doing and then he looked anyway, because then I have a character problem with Kirk more. But since they did not do that, there's not proper... You know, she she just said, turn your back and didn't explain it. Like, that's just, no, like, no. And there's also the fact that when the writers or producers or director of this movie were uh, asked about the various deficiencies of this scene, mm. uh, they often would counter defensively with, oh, well, we showed Kirk with his shirt off in bed, or we filmed a scene with John Harrison in the shower as if yeah. that's supposed to mean something. <laughs> yeah it's definitely a common wrong course when we're trying to bring justice to this to the situation is oh there's a problem with this well we'll make that same problem over here for some other people so then at least it'll be fair <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's not actually what needs to be corrected and i guess there wasn't any time for kirk to get it with some alien women well just the two cat ladies at the beginning of the movie oh was that this movie okay i couldn't remember I liked the two cat ladies. <laughs> I would think Glenn would enjoy that scene because he's always the one saying that they should be more polyamory. <laughs> I mean, group sex is not always polyamory. I'll just throw that in there. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed. <laughs> the other note that I had about women in these movies was something we didn't get to on the previous show, um, but mm. it's worth pointing out that Given the uniform design in these movies, the women's uniforms do not oh, have their crap. ranks, which is kind of crap. Yeah, that's an oversight. Uh, and something that they're correcting for the new movie, so that's good. Good for them. Yeah, the the very short skirt, which I read as a throwback to the 60s when that shape of dress was extremely popular, uh, it, it does seem dated and impractical now. Yeah, that's something that I've seen people saying was actually quite progressive for the 60s in terms of, you know, women having control of their sexuality and such. Yeah, at the time, in the late 1960s, that was very progressive and forward yes. thinking and empowering. Yes, and then reproducing that now takes a somewhat different form. Exactly, because it's a different cultural context. Yes. But at the time, that was Nichelle Nichols and Grace Lee Whitney who were the two major forces behind, hey, give these ladies a skirt uniform. And throughout the mm -hmm. movie series, when they switched to the maroon jackets in Star Trek II, Nichelle Nichols is the one that said, hey, can there be a skirt version of this for Uhura? Yeah, I mean, it is progressive through the lens of what being feminine is. Like, is, is feminine a signpost of weakness or a signpost of strength? If you insist on being feminine in a masculine space, that can be a power move. And that's, I think, how Uhura intended it originally. Like, I'm in here, I'm equal with all of you, I'm worthy of being in this room, but I'm, I'm still a woman and I won't have you erase that about me. Like, that's there. 
it's just harder to see now. I just, I'm just like, I wish I had some pants because it looks cold in there. Like it just. <laughs> and Zoe Saldana's little cap sleeve, like she looks great in the dress, but it, it seems fucking cold on the Enterprise bridge. Maybe this is all the blue light seems cold, but. <laughs> Well, they do show some of the women crew members wearing the regular pants and long-sleeved version of the uniform. They just, mm. Zoe Saldana doesn't wear that in either of the movies. But they do show, like, background characters, women wearing the regular uniform. That's or true. the men's version. That's true. Or whatever you want to call it. Well, then, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe that's it right there. So it's an homage to the original Uhura. Uh, speaking of uniforms, getting into the design elements of this movie, Scott, I know you have been keeping close track of all of the multitudinous new uniforms in these movies. Well, there's about nine or so new uniforms in this movie, in addition to the 12 that were introduced in the last movie. In this movie, we get the new, like, shuttle uniforms, the sort of gray overcoat uniform with the clear plastic holes where you can see their colored shirt underneath. And then there's the Starfleet wetsuits for when they swim down to the Enterprise. And then there's a new sort of, not dress uniform, but sort of dress uniform with the sort of gray uniform with the pants and jacket and the cap. I love caps with the uniforms in this movie. The uniform that Noel Clark wears when he blows up his workstation is another new uniform, and he has a cap. There's uh, the people that deliver the torpedoes onto the Enterprise. They have another new uniform. There's another new kind of medical smock that's sort of reminiscent of some of the shirts that McCoy wore in the original series. It's sort of a paler, more metallic blue than McCoy's shirts in the original series. And then there's the uniforms that the Vengeance crew are wearing. They also have a cap. Like I said, they love caps with uniforms in this movie. And then there's some sort of like radiation suit thing that people are wearing in the background when they reveal Kirk's body in sickbay after he dies. Which I'm not entirely sure if those are actually like people in uniforms or if it's some sort of medical robot or what that is. Because I don't think they move in that scene. Oh, I think they're robots. I know what you're talking about. I think they, they're bots. They might be. And then at the end of the movie, when Kirk wakes up, McCoy is in another new sort of medical uniform. He has a lab coat. Yeah, so that's <laughs> like eight or nine new uniforms for this movie in addition to the dozen or so they had in the last movie. Like I said, they introduce uniforms even faster than they introduce themes in these movies. I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I, I do like how the sort of the, the main one, the colored shirts with the trousers, it looks they look comfortable like you could go play paintball. Like that's how I'd wanna dress. Do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do? They have that sort of athletic fabric look to them, the tops. And they don't have a formal collar, you know, they're kind of loose around the neck, like, they, yeah, they look super comfy. Getting into the design of this movie a little more, one of the big changes that they make is the look of the warp core, that they show off a couple of times. The brewery sets that they had in the previous movie are de-emphasized. They're still there a little bit, but when they go to the actual warp core, it looks more like a particle accelerator, just to make it a little more futuristic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't dislike the brewery sets like other people did. I actually kind of liked that look 
for the engineering deck, but, you know, they needed something for Kirk to climb through, so. Yeah. Otherwise, though, I don't understand the internal construction of this Enterprise, like, at all. Like, when Kirk and Scotty are trying to get to engineering toward the end of the movie when the ship is falling into Earth, I, I like all of the motion on the sets. Like, they put the set on a gimbal and turned it around to signify the artificial gravity fucking up and the Earth's gravity. You know, that that was all exciting enough for the, for the action scene. But where did the bottomless pit come from? Like, where is that supposed to be? I'm assuming somewhere... I don't know. <laughs> They're in engineering, and Chekhov decides to run to flip a switch behind the deflector dish. And he gets there in about ten seconds, but that's, you know, he runs at the speed of plot. Um, yeah. On the way from sickbay to the warp core, Scotty and Kirk pass the shuttle bay. Like, like, <laughs> like there's this, you know, big shot where the shuttles are falling around because the gravity is fucking up, and I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's the same way that the deck numbers that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy pass through in the turbo shaft in Star Trek V. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't something I stress about a lot. I just think it's funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they held themselves to account for those particular things just yet. Yeah, that's fair. I did love the ship falling like, and, and the call to abandon ship like because it, because it was like... An ocean craft sinking, like the loss of control and the the imminent demise thing. Like I, I was very moved by that and worried about them. And it's upsetting to see this ship fall. Yeah, they definitely did a good job with all of the shots of the ship kind of descending through the atmosphere of making it look chaotic. Mm-hmm. You know, like the ship was completely out of control until they finally got the engines back online. Yeah. Yeah. The big design element that we didn't get to on the last show, but we have to address at some point, Alana, yeah. what do you think of the lens flares? Oh, yay, lens flares. It's not as bad as when Michael Bay does Transformers, but they're a little conspicuous. <laughs> I like it and I dislike it. Like, it's very science and pretty in a way but there is such a thing as too much i don't think it's too much yet but it's there i think on subsequent viewings they're less and less distracting yeah i know a lot of people think they're distracting but like after the first time i don't really find them distracting so much they are distinctive it's a very distinctive element of the cinematography for these movies so i get what they're going for there yeah, I don't even notice them. It's just sort of part of the background. They're there, and I'm not really paying attention to the lens flares and paying attention to the characters and the action and whatever, so I don't even notice them. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's part of the general brightness of the movie. I mean, people complain about a lot of, you know, blockbuster action movies now that are so dark and monotone, and one of the things that they do try to pull forth from Star Trek in these movies is 
you know, the brightness and some of the colors. You know, they still have the bright uniforms, even if the sets are, you know, a little more monotone than the old sets in the TV shows and the movies. But, you know, I mean, if, if the bridge is the Apple store, the brig in this movie is the employee break room at the Apple headquarters. <laughs> After Generations, where they basically turned off all the lights on set, and then First Contact, where they redesigned the ship and redesigned the uniforms, and their inspiration was darkness. Yes. I'm fine with a little over-lighting. I'll even go along with the Apple Store Starship design. It's nice just to be able to see what the fuck is happening again. Uh, that is definitely yeah. one part of it, yeah. Let us move on then to the score for this movie. Now, Scott, you and I were in agreement in large part on the last score, and I think we are again on this one because this is one that you really love, right? Oh, absolutely. This is this has some of my favorite Star Trek music ever is in this score. The Warp Core Values track, the Buying a Space Farm track is just awesome. Uh, right. We are, of course, back again with Michael Giacchino, who's worked with J.J. Abrams voluminously. And, of course, as you just mentioned, we are back with Michael Giacchino's track titles, such as Warp Core Values and Buying the Space Farm. Yeah, I was earlier reading some of the track titles, and I felt I had grown stupider from having to say meldmerized. Yeah, that, okay, that one's fair. I would also like to point out, as we pointed out in the last movie, of all of the various themes Giacchino wrote for that one movie... In this movie, we have most of those themes back. Obviously, we don't get the Romulan theme, the Nero theme anymore, but we still have the Vulcan theme, we still have the main theme, we still have the Enterprise theme, which is emphasized a lot more in this movie than it was in the last one. And in addition, we get a new theme for John Harrison, a new theme for Admiral Marcus, and a new theme for the Klingons. Yeah, the Klingon music, I think, is kind of interesting because... I don't personally find it as memorable as the Klingon themes that had previously been written for Star Trek. Obviously, you know, lots of people know Jerry Goldsmith's from Star Trek 1. James Horner did one for Star Trek 3 that was inspired by that one, but also basically his theme for the aliens in Aliens as well. Ron Jones, one of the composers for The Next Generation, wrote a Klingon theme that was also inspired by Goldsmith's theme, but not really Goldsmith's theme, that I think had some really compelling arrangements. The one that Giacchino uses here, I don't think is as memorable, but it's very, very different from all the other ones. Well, it's more based in what the Klingons are doing in this movie, so it's more of a belligerent theme, it's more of a warlike theme. And again, that could be just be some of its use. If the next movie gives us a peaceful Klingon, we may get a whole new twist on the theme. That would be very interesting. The introduction that I had to this score before the movie came out, and the introduction a lot of people had, was in a concert that Giacchino did, where after the main body of the concert was over, kind of as an encore, they performed the Ode to Harrison suite of John Harrison's theme. And that's one of the distinctive things about the Into Darkness score, actually, is... I mentioned on the last show that Giacchino is one of the few composers who gets to write full end credits pieces. He doesn't for this one, 
But what he does get to do this time is he writes two lengthy suites for two of the new themes, really exploring them in elongated arrangements. There's one for Harrison, and there's one for the Admiral Marcus theme called Ode to Vengeance. And both are just really, really good explorations of those two themes. And that is a really rare thing for a composer to get to do. I mean, John Williams does it for a lot of his major scores, but otherwise it yeah, is very, say, very rare. Is it a rare thing for a composer to get to do, or is it a rare thing for a composer to bother to do? Well, oftentimes Williams does them because he's going to put them on the soundtrack album. And it's just going to be, you know, this theme is represented by a suite. And he did that for a lot of his major well-known scores. And some of his less-known ones as well. Here, it's a little different in that neither of these suites got on the original soundtrack album. I mean, the Ode to Harrison was performed in concert. It was played on a radio program that interviewed Chikino before the movie came out. But it wasn't included on the soundtrack album. Um, a bit of it was tracked into the end credits because there isn't a full end credits piece. There's the original series theme again and a couple of tracks kind of spliced in. So to record these as kind of a free exercise, you know, especially if, if you're not going to put them on the soundtrack album, I think the main argument against doing it is just because it costs money to hire all of the uh, orchestra players. And so that's one major reason why it doesn't happen very much. I don't think it's composers not bothering to do it. It's, you know, you have a certain amount of money to record the score, and the soundtrack album is kind of almost a byproduct. You have this music you already recorded for the movie, put some of it on a CD. Williams does it a lot because he's a very prominent composer and because he recorded them specifically to be put on the album. Is what you mean, Glenn, that like when it's John Williams composing, the soundtrack actually like is a merchandising feature the way it sometimes isn't? That's definitely an element, too. I mean, Williams is going to sell more albums than a lot of composers. A franchise might sell more albums than others. You know, a Star Trek album might sell more than, you know... Pacific Rim or something, I don't know, but... The Pacific Rim soundtrack was pretty awesome. The Pacific Rim theme was pretty good. I, I, I hope it returns for the uh, next one. Tim's going to be in John Boyega. Yeah, yeah, I just saw that today. Just saw that yesterday, yeah. That was actually one great surprise of the soundtrack album for Giacchino's first Star Trek score. It sold way more than anyone was expecting. And that's one of the reasons why they put out the Deluxe Edition a year later. For Into Darkness, I think they were planning more for that. They did release a two-disc Deluxe Edition a year later again, which I believe is actually the complete score this time. It's possible that there are a couple tiny things missing, so maybe don't quote me on that. But I don't know off the top of my head of anything missing. But still, the, the Harrison theme, I think really does a great job of exploring the character of John Harrison as he is in this movie. Somewhat yeah. as opposed to Khan. Because, you know, the theme is very devious. It, it works in a lot of swirling figures. It uses the symbolum to lend it a sort of unsettled quality. To kind of point at his madness to an extent. And it is used... All over this score. Again, the way that Giacchino really layers in a lot of his themes. What do you think of Harrison's theme and the way that it's layered into the movie? 
Harrison's theme, out of all the various themes that are introduced, it might be my least favorite. I don't dislike it. I sort of, I get sick of it easily if I hear, like, I can't listen to that Ode to Harrison track. It's just too much of that theme all in a row for me. Which I realize is completely ironic and maybe somewhat hypocritical given my criticisms of earlier scores and their lack of emphasis on themes, but I just can't take this theme in that much of a concentrated burst. It's much better used more sparingly. At least for me. Interesting. No, I really, really love that suite. I mean, from from the first time I saw the substandard handheld recorder quality from the concert. Like, I enjoy the Klingon battle scene where they use the Harrison theme heavily when he takes out the entire platoon pretty much on his own. But the Ode to Harrison track where it's just all that theme for the entire thing, it's just sort of too much of that theme for me. What I really, really love is the Admiral Marcus Ode to Vengeance theme. I think that's really good and really interesting and used in a lot of interesting ways throughout the soundtrack. That's a really compelling theme, too. And it was kind of deceptively all over the movie, at least in the first and second acts, as things are being pieced together. I say deceptively because that particular theme was left off the original soundtrack album entirely. And, Pretty much, yeah. And so when people started examining the music in the movie and talking about what wasn't on the album, they came over with this like entire new theme. And so that gained a bit of novelty. And then when the deluxe edition came out and we suddenly had this six and a half minute suite of just that theme, again, really exploring it to a great extent, it was like the most pleasant of surprises. It is sort of an example of how you become sort of prejudiced by the soundtrack album. Mm. Because, you know, the album, I don't remember exactly when it came out in relation to this movie, but it usually at least leaks online like a week or so ahead of time. So you're already listening to it before you even see the movie. And then you go see the movie. And if you liked the movie, well, you can't just go run out and see the movie six more times, but you can sit in your living room and listen to the soundtrack six more times. And so... When you watch the movie and listen for that theme, it's used very heavily and not subtly in a lot of ways. And in some instances, it is used rather subtly, but in a lot of instances, it's not used subtly at all. The introduction when they switch scenes from Kirk and Pike in the bar to the Starfleet headquarters where they're having the meeting, it's just played flat out, a big, bold rendition of that theme. And then again, when they're going to the Enterprise. Yeah. When, they, when, they, when they're transferring to the Enterprise, they play that theme again in, in like, The Hangar. It's used prominently, and it's used pr in pretty bold renditions, and it's used a lot. And yet, it's still sort of sprung up as a surprise to people because you're so focused on what's on the soundtrack CD. Mm -hmm. You know, you can sit at home and listen to the soundtrack CD over and over and over and over and over again, and you've only seen the movie maybe once or twice because you got to go out to the theater and sit through it. And even when you do, you're watching the story. You're not necessarily paying very, very close attention to the score. And so even though it's used so prominently and even though it's used so often, it was still sort of a discovery when people started to analyze the movie and said, oh, hey, wait, there's this whole theme nobody has mentioned just because it happens to not be featured on the soundtrack CD. Yeah, and there's sort of a gradual process of discovery of, you know, okay, there's this other theme. Whose theme is it? 
<laughs> and then you kind of put together it's when they're going to the headquarters for their meeting, when they're transferring to the Enterprise, you know, a few of these other scenes, and eventually you figure out that it's for Admiral Marcus, it's for his plan kind of coming together in all those little pieces. Can I just say the entire end sequence, when the ship is crashing into the planet and Kirk and Scotty are running through the ship, and then when Kirk is climbing up into the warp core, and then when Kirk dies, that entire sequence, all of the music from that entire sequence is just exceptional. It showcases the action going on in the movie so well. It really, really, really adds to the movie and enhances the movie. It enhances what the visuals are trying to do so, so, so well. Especially in the Warp Core Values track that you mentioned, there are some really great developments of Kirk's theme. The use of Kirk's theme in Warp Core Values, I liken it, and as soon as I heard Warp Core Values, I liken it to a track that John Williams wrote for the third Harry Potter movie, which was the best score that any of those movies got. Mm. But there's a track toward the end of the movie where Harry Potter is casting his Patronus spell to drive away the demonic Dementors that are going to suck the soul out of everybody. And he casts this spell that's just like a silvery white light that pulses out and drives away all these demonic wraiths. And Williams writes this piece of music that has sort of like an ethereal background and then he just sort of drops in the main Harry Potter theme, but he doesn't play it all the way through. He plays, like, part of it. And then he pauses and just lets the ethereal background, and then he plays another part. And then he pauses, and then he plays another part. And he sort of separates out the theme like that. And so it's really sort of elongated and beautiful, and not just the, a full rendition. And they do sort of the same thing in Warp Core Values. Giacchino does the same sort of thing in Warp Core Values where there's this sort of mounting tension background because, you know, the ship is crashing and Kirk's trying to save the warp core and whatever. And so there's a sort of mounting tension background. And then over top of that, they, they don't play the main theme, the Kirk theme. They don't play it all the way through. They only play, like, part of it. And not only that, but he goes even a step further and he, like, drops notes out of it. He plays, like, a seven or eight note theme, but he drops three or four notes out of it. So you just, it's almost like a hint. It's like, this is enough to recognize what it is, but it's not even every note that's supposed to be in the theme. And then there's the pause, and then he plays another piece of it. And again, he sort of drops notes out of it, so it's not even the whole theme. And it's just beautiful the way it comes together. It's almost like the outline of the theme, without some of the interim notes. Yeah. As Kirk is, if you want to be didactic about it, as Kirk is starting to be eaten away by the radiation, you know, his theme is kind of eroding. I never thought of it in those terms, but that's a very excellent way of looking at it. It's a very good interpretation. I just, it's, it's such an amazing piece of music. Like I said, it's one of my favorite pieces of Star Trek music ever. <laughs> well, you like it so much that we had to include it as two of our bumpers on this episode. Yeah, I, I, I kind of let my biases <laughs> run away with me on this episode. <laughs> this one. Um, You'll notice on these two G Kino scores, I have not been reduced to trying to find an I Need You line to take the place of one of the bumpers. Oh, goodness gracious. Nobody needs me. Use that in the future. Uh, one other side note about the music related to this movie. 
Around the time of this movie's release, they released a Star Trek video game that everybody hated, but it had an excellent, excellent score by Chad Sider, who is a um, music producer and a co-composer who has worked with Giacchino extensively. He was one of the composers on season one of Fringe when Giacchino did a couple episodes at the beginning and Chad Sider and Chris Tilton would eventually go on to do the rest of the series. And Sider took the main Giacchino theme and kind of molded it a little differently and extended it into this wonderful, uplifting melody. It's just fantastic. And I just want to give a quick shout out to that. Um, it was never released on album, even like on iTunes or anything. Uh, the only bits of it that are available are on Chad Sider's SoundCloud page. But if anyone is interested in the music for these movies kind of looked at from a different perspective by a different composer, I would really, really recommend that. Are you saying that he took the existing theme written for the movie and sort of approached it from a different direction and used a lot of the original theme but also added his own twist and his own little bits to it? Yes. And to, to create this sort of new piece of music but that's still based on the original theme? Yes. Indeed. <laughs> I don't like that theme as much as you do. I appreciate it. It's fine, but I'm not in love with it the way you are. It just, it never grabbed me the way it grabbed you. Fair enough. I do really like this score. I know you love it. The closest thing I would have to a criticism, and I say the closest thing, is that at the end of the last movie, they finally earned the original series theme. And it appeared in a fantastic arrangement over the first part of the end credits of that movie. And it appears in pretty much that same arrangement, there's some orchestration changes, in the first part of the end credits for this movie. And I found myself thinking that it would have been really neat if once they had all come together and earned that theme finally at the end of the last movie, if that had kind of been mixed in a little more in the body of the score this time. I could see that. I, I get that argument, and I can see the desire for that. On the other hand, I kind of like the way they did it, where they sort of let the new themes stand on their own. Let the new themes underscore the film, and then, you know, use the old theme as this sort of standalone musical piece over the credits. I, I kind of like the way they did that. Yeah, plus the old theme has a, a real throwback sensibility to the way that the melody works. So I think it actually would have been distracting inside of this film. Plus, if they hold off until the credits, you get to cry when you hear it. At least if you're me. <laughs> yeah, it does sort of make it more special that, you know... Also, because you said, well, at the end of the last movie, they got everyone together, and so they had built up to the point where they could use the original theme. This movie sort of retreads those same grounds. And if you want to try to criticize the writing or the storytelling... This movie is once again about Kirk trying to prove that he's worthy of being captain. He gets removed from his captaincy and then reinstated and then he removes himself. And he tells Spock, you're the one that knows what to do, not me. And then Kirk saves the day and re-earns his place as captain. And so it sort of fits again. They use the old theme in the same way because the story builds to the same place where it's appropriate to use the theme in the same way. That, that's fair, and Elena, I do take your point that it's most significantly used as catharsis for the very end of the movie. Yeah. 
the other thing is if you're going to use it throughout the film, what are you going to use it to signify? There's already a main theme that's associated with Kirk. There's already a theme for the ship. What are you going to use that theme to signify? That's a fair question as well. You know, I was thinking of it more as a general Star Trek theme if you maybe want to use the main theme more specifically just for Kirk. Yeah. But but it's definitely valuable perspectives on that. Plus, I don't know, like, it makes me happy to be inside the franchise. Like, a lot of the times I'm bothered by franchises, like, just on principle. But for some reason, I feel very welcomed. Like, at the end of both of these so far, we're like, okay, so that was fun, and now our new mission is blah. And, like, so, like, I know perfectly well that they're setting me up for the next film, and I'm just so happy. And then they give me the music, and I feel super satisfied. (laughs) Even though I know they're, like... They, you know, they're making a play for my money in the theater. I'm somehow 100% happy. I'm just happy at the end knowing that there will be a next movie. Because right. after, after that sort of dark period from 1999 to 2009, I'm just glad that they're still making new movies and that they're actually really good. Yeah, yeah that is definitely uh, some place to come around to. For for the end of this show, despite the criticisms that I have of it and people who are far more critical of it than I am, Star Trek is here. It is an existent, current phenomenon, and there is value in that. Mm -hmm. I'm really stoked about Beyond. Depending on what trailer you see, it's either going to be really awesome or really messed up. There's one good trailer and one terrible trailer so far. (laughs) See, I didn't dislike that first trailer the way other people did. I don't see. I, don't... I liked the first one and disliked the second one. That's interesting. Oh, really? That is not <laughs> yeah. the majority opinion that I've read. Most Woo-hoo. people hated the first one and then liked the second one. Like, oh, well, maybe they're not completely stupid. Uh, what mm. was it about the second one that bothered you? I wonder. It was just there were too many tiny fragments. I had no idea about anything in the story, which I guess people like because we don't like trailers that spoil the movie. I don't know. I just it was it was too incoherent for me, even though the pace, you know, it had an exciting pace. But all right. Well, on that note, um, I can say I'm certainly looking forward to beyond. And dear listeners, we will be back just as soon as we can be after we see it with our reaction show for Star Trek Beyond. Following up on that plug. Um, Alana, is there anything that you would like to recommend people find on the internet or anywhere you would like people to find you on the internet? Well, if, if there are any West Wing fans out there, I'm enjoying the West Wing weekly reflection podcast that Josh Molina is running. If you have not yet discovered it, it's available at your various podcast distributors and it, it's, a, they're doing a, a episode by episode retrospective. And so I like all that because I'm a big West Wing fan. And then if you ever want to talk to me on the internet, I'm on Facebook. It is my first and last name because uh, my age cohort is 30 plus. So (laughs) there you go. All right. Well, if you would like to find me anywhere on the internet, I am at Bun on the Tumblr and the Twitter. You can find me on Facebook if you like. To find any previous episodes of this show, look to placetobenation.com or the new PTBN POP podcast feed in your podcatcher of choice. 
For any of our previous Star Trek episodes and anything else that we've done about Star Trek on the website, go to placebenation.com slash Star Trek. If you would like to find me on any social media or email me at glennb at placetobenation.com, we are looking for questions for a future Star Trek mailbag episode that I had intended to do when we finished this Vault series, which is coming up pretty soon. So if you have any questions for us, please get them in. We want to hear from you. Scott, you don't want to hear from anyone, though, right? I am not currently participating in social media. Yeah, well, I want to hear from you. Glenn wants to hear from you. Thank you so much, Alana, for coming back on the show. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And it's hilarious when you don't like the movie, Glenn. I just... It's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will be back with Star Trek Beyond, and I dearly hope I like that. Yeah. We will see you then, listeners. Thank you, and good night. names I didn't get to use. Uh, which ones didn't I use? Bric-a-brac Crumblebum? Blylevin Cranberries? I didn't mark off the ones I used. Bonhomme Richard Chicken Strips. Bedlington Commonwealth. Wow. Do you guys have a bingo card? Budapest Corner Pocket. Buckingham Cracker Dong. Beetlejuice Cog Swallop. Bento Box Custard Bath. Nice. Benjamin Carpenter. That's hilarious for some reason. Oh my God. Uh, bumper Stump Camouflage. Beauregard Candy Striper. Beauregard. Oh, these are the best. Oh, there's so many we need to get to use. Oh, well. <laughs>